Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. With us today is my husband, Mark Johnson. Oh, we're already on. We're we already go. on. Returning champion. Woo! Oh. And if there were like a five timers club like there is on SNL, uh, Mark wouldn't be that. But if there were a three timers club, yeah. he would be the inaugural member. He is the first person to be on three episodes. Your jacket's in the mail. Your three-timers well, jacket. Let's, let's commission a belt. I would prefer a championship belt. Okay. It's like, who with do you room. have to sleep with to get on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> who, the, who the hell you got to marry around here? <laughs> well, Mark, anything new since the last time you were with us? I don't think a lot has changed at all since the last time. We've, we're back in school. And things are normal, and you can't see my air quotes because this is radio. And uh, I think I have like just very deep sleep a lot of times because I'm exhausted, and it's a good exhaustion, I guess. And uh, no, not not much. Ushering in a new year. This is, I think, the last one we're going to record of 2021. Oh, listeners, we're coming to you from last year. <laughs> So we leave our baggage on this one. Yeah. We leave everything from this year behind. That's right. We've got a lot of baggage to leave because there's been trouble in Candyland. <gasps> Nicely done. Ooh. All right, let's do this. Well, that was my <laughs> heavy-fisted, ham-handed beautiful. segue into <laughs> telling you that today we're discussing Parenthood Season 4, Episode 10, Trouble in Candyland. It was written by Jesse Zwick, directed by Dylan K. Masson. It originally aired on December 4th, 2012, and here is the DVD synopsis. Sarah deepens her involvement with Hank, further straining her relationship with Mark. Julia experiments with new techniques to help Victor with schoolwork. Meanwhile, Amber helps Ryan secure a job as Crosby and Adam enter a legal battle to save the luncheonette. Like I said, this episode was written by Jesse Zwick, who is the son of writer, director, producer Edward Zwick, who co-created oh. TV shows like 30-something. That was going to be my guess. Which Parenthood is often compared to, and Once and Again. I loved Once and Again. Sorry. You can't find the third season anywhere, though, so I'm stuck. Okay, keep going. Jesse Zwick, if you're listening, can you get us the third season of Once and Again? Please. Ed Zwick also produced My So-Called Life. There it is. And directed many films, some of which are Glory and Legends of the Fall. <laughs> anyway, Jesse's Wick. It's his first parenthood script. Hey. Good job, Jesse. <laughs> I thought for this episode, we would just tackle the white whale right off the bat. <laughs> just go right into Candyland? The candy big land? kahuna. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You don't have to do that. What am I doing? You're trying to make it okay that you're packing for your trip and yeah. I'm packing for my trip, I but am. it's it's not. It's not okay, so let's just finish it up and, you know, pack and... Well, we can make it okay. I said that I would come on Saturday. I don't want you to come anymore. I really don't. I want you to do your work thing that's important, and uh, I'll have a weekend with my friends, and I'll see you on Monday. Okay? You know, I... I'm in this tough position, and I just tried to make a really hard choice. You, yeah, you, exactly. You made a to... choice, and, you know, I'm sure Hank is very appreciative. You're a great, great employee. You're just a lousy fiancé. My first question, which is rhetorical, is why did they have to pack at exactly the same time? I mean, if I went in to pack after the fight they had and found the other one packing, 
I'd kill an hour and then I'd go back and pack my suitcase when they were done. Did but not anyway. even occur to me, and you're so right. Mark, we <laughs> would like, never park side like pack side by side if we were in a fight, would we? No, I think if we were packing angry, I'd be like throwing my bag and throwing the clothes and <laughs> my voice would be cracking and you keep apologizing and then I I'd do. throw the clothes some more. <laughs> that's that's a peak behind I, the I wouldn't have a wardrobe that would make any kind of sense when the whole thing was over. Like there's no way <laughs> that when I got to where I was going I would be happy with the wardrobe I'd picked. So the lesson here is don't pack angry. That's right. Don't pack angry. Unless you're Mark, then pack the whole house and get the fuck out. Get the fuck out, oh, Mark. That Mark, not this Mark. No. No. Well, that's the his other house, Mark. but Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he but I mean just the, he should give her the keys to the street. Wherever wherever <laughs> she is, get away from it. That's so that's what I that's say. your hot take. That's my hot take. Well, I think I've got my answer for my real question now, which is was Mark's parting shot too harsh? No. <laughs> you know, ultimately I don't think it was because she is a lousy fiance. It sounds terrible, <laughs> but part of me is like, objectively speaking, is this just yes. accurate? Yes, it is. How many men has she made out with while she's been, in, you know, with him? Two. And and John Corbett, fine, that's fine. But now it's gone too far. I agree. I was like, I thought the parting shot was definitely hurtful. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if he were not mad right in that moment, he might. I mean, and this bears out later. He does feel bad about it yeah. in retrospect. But I, I also thought, I'm like, it's just, it's a sign that he felt hurt by Sarah's choice, by Sarah's actions. And I think he has every right to be hurt. And hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Well, and so how he just said something hurtful. How patient does he need to be? I mean, I feel like every time I pop in on right. this show, and especially in this one, and I watched the one before, I mean, this guy is a saint. I mean, he tries to handle everything. With humor, he he's so accommodating. He does the cable thing. He does all these nice things. And she just takes and takes and takes. And she's just about her or anybody but him, apparently. That's well I think it was about time for her to get a taste of it. I, I think that she needed to have that moment of his anger to really understand that he is human and she is not treating him correctly. With like <laughs> dignity or respect. Anything. I mean, yeah. it's just like, it's yeah. not that she's being overtly mean to him he just doesn't exist in her sphere of thinking and she knows that he'll forgive her and so she just keeps doing it over and over again and i think it was good for him to have a real reaction and it was it harsh sure but what she did was harsh as well and thoughtless and sketchy you know i gotta say this too my mark sitting next to me here has said before that like doesn't like it when people mistake his kindness for weakness and it really seems to apply here. Like, I think she has sort of done that with her mark, you know, like he's so kind and accommodating and understanding. And I think that maybe in her mind, that means she almost puts him second because he will be the understanding one. Yeah. And I was about to say that Hank doesn't hold back any of his feelings and he's constantly making little digs at Mark and their relationship and implying that he's controlling or implying that she's going to get in trouble and, and just constantly taking these shots, she does nothing to defend him. She does nothing to, she, she answers that. She responds to that. That, that kind of uh, caustic and toxic kind of approach really works for her. And it worked here too. <laughs> he finally got her attention. 
you know, and, yeah. and that, that's just not, uh, that's not good. I mean, it happens sometimes. It happens in healthy relationships. It happens. But I think in this particular relationship, from what I'm seeing, it's not good that the only time she's going to pay attention to him or give him respect is when he has to reach out there and kind of take it. When he, like, loses it. Yeah. He yeah. has to go get to the end of his rope, you know. That's, that's a really good point, man. It's too bad. It yeah. is. Yeah. The only thing I can think of that she ever says to defend a little is twice now, and I think the previous episode and this episode, he's Hank has called Mark her boyfriend, and both times she's like fiance, I think, but maybe just yeah. once she, yeah. But she doesn't say he's not controlling. Yeah, yeah, it's not. That's the bare minimum. Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, we see Ruby again in this episode, but we also meet Sandy, Hank's ex-wife. I was fascinated by her. She is played by Betsy Brandt, who is probably best known for her role as Marie on Breaking Bad. And on Breaking Bad, her character's husband was named Hank. Weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've never watched that show, but I was looking that up and I thought, what are the odds? Now, separate issue. Okay. Her name is Sandy. And when I was looking at the credits for this episode, I couldn't remember the actress's names. And at first I thought, that waitress is in this oh, episode right. again. And I remember hearing a rule from the playwright Marsha Norman that she gives her students, which is to give characters very different names just for the ease of differentiating them. So, like, you know, if you have one character named Tom, don't name another character Tim Mm -hmm. unless the similarity of the names is going to hinge on that. So, like I said, naming Hank's ex-wife Sandy did at first, remind me of the waitress Sandy. I didn't but even I think, think ultimately it. that's just an effect of watching this show too closely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought, how many regular viewers, especially if they were watching this as it aired, yeah. weeks apart, and then with month long hiatuses between it's like, seasons? Hey, Crosby went like, on two dates with a Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the pretty waitress Zeke flirted with at the pancake house. Wh- what's happening? We're she on was to Hank. <laughs> anyway. After we meet Sandy, you know, Sarah takes Ruby inside and Ruby tells Sarah, you don't have to freak out over them. And it was just, a, I think, probably a throwaway line. But to me, it sort of felt like, Sarah, Ruby is offering you wisdom here. <laughs> take it. She is trying to guide your life. You do not have to take this on. And it made me think, like, Sarah has her own relationship with her ex that is messy and yeah. complicated. I'm sure Sarah couldn't imagine some outside third party swooping in and just magically fixing everything. And I thought that is what Sarah, I think on some level, thinks she's going to do. She's going to go down there and make this all better. I'm like, that is a fool's errand, Sarah. Yeah. You don't have to freak out over them. All right. So here's what I found fascinating. So Sandy hates Hank. And... I understand that I shouldn't be judgmental about their relationship that I know nothing about and who knows who did what to whom and why it's so tense and non-amicable, you know, (laughs) that they did not part well. But I did, I mean, I just kept finding myself comparing and maybe I shouldn't, but I'm like, boy, in every single area, Mark is the healthy option and Hank is the unhealthy option. The one time we meet Mark's ex, and it wasn't just someone he dated for a couple months, six years. Yeah. They got along great. They were friendly. I mean, maybe a little too great. She was a little flirty with them, but like <laughs> she didn't hate his guts, which to me means 
they parted well. I think that's something to look at, you know? And then Hank's ex, <laughs> you know, can't stand him. I'm like, well, that feels like a red flag. That's interesting. Or like when Hank is upset, he gets blazing drunk. He did it last episode. He's doing it this episode. When Mark is upset, he exercises, you know, he like goes and finds a treadmill and maybe that's unfair, but I'm just like, Sarah just is drawn to the unhealthy person and relationship. Okay. So that was my little observation. I also thought it was strange to see two scenes with no Bravermans in it. Yeah. When Sarah takes Ruby inside, we go back out and watch a scene between Hank and Sandy. I'm like, these are two guest stars. And then there's another scene between Hank and Ruby. And again, Braverman-less. Also, I have never seen a child so excited to leave all her friends and move halfway across the country. <laughs> like, what 11-year-old or 12-year-old is like, great, pull me out of middle school and let's just start all over. Yeah. It's... I mean, I'm glad she's happy about it, I guess. But <laughs> I just, I'm like, I don't know these kids. I, it was so interesting because she's so happy and you can just, uh, to me, I, I could see Hank's selfishness when he's having that conversation. I was like, wow, he just barely let her have her way in that. I mean, he wanted, you know, he was just like all he could do to listen to, like, she's happy. She's glad she's going. Everything's good. Just let it be and f- let the rest figure it out. But it was, it, he was just, he just barely didn't sabotage that, you know? And yeah. she even was the kind of the adult in that conversation. Very I mean, she's so. just like pats him on the hand, like, of course I'll miss you. <laughs> you know? And he's like, Oh, okay. And and he took it as she gave him that nugget and he took it. But like, I have seen Hank in passing and I really like the character, but as watching him now and like sitting down and watching it, what an asshole, what a damn asshole. Yeah. Right now. Anyway, I don't know. He's very selfish and very, just he's just everything he does kind of pisses me off it just kind of pisses it just gets on my nerves especially in juxtaposition with mark it just really gets on my nerves yeah do you think that you might have been influenced by liking ray romano because i have come to that he is so good no because i didn't (laughs) like ray romano and i was a little shocked that i liked hank because i always thought ray romano was kind of a soft seinfeld because, you know, Everyone Loves Raymond was on after Seinfeld, and like, it was kind of the show. And I, I would see bits and pieces and be like, he's just like a more drawn out Seinfeld, like with less edge. You know, it's like just more family friendly. And I don't know that that's fair. I don't know. That was just a hot take. I didn't give a sh- damn. I, I was just watching it. <laughs> but I've never been a fan of Ray Romano until I had saw, I think in real time, when you were wa- actually yeah. watching the show, I had saw, P- and I was like, oh, this is impeccable. And I, I, maybe I did think that the acting was good, but I think I saw and it, it out of context, I too. Yeah. I, I saw it without, I just, I saw it without him, you know, the kind of um, what happens as a result, without the consequences of his behavior, or just the fact that it's happening within the confines of a very, uh, what should be a pretty healthy relationship, and he is just poisoning it yes that's it he's not necessarily trying to break them up he gives zero shits if he breaks them up yeah he does he does not care about the consequences and he he doesn't really care about her either it's real like the conversations that they have in this episode are so one-sided i mean it's just it's just non-stop one-sided conversations what can she do for him i feel like yeah and he just i mean i know that there's a depth of his character um, there are other things going on there, but but in this episode and in the last episode, I think that he, he's really come across as as a jerk. 
I was frustrated by Hank in that scene with Ruby too for another reason, which is because you're right. He did ultimately barely (laughs) put her first and do the right thing. I was frustrated watching him realize that he shouldn't have let it get this far Mm -hmm. because he's right. He says that I should never have let it get this far. All it took was him finding out that Ruby was okay with moving and he was able to put her needs above his and then like all the fight left him. And I thought, well, why didn't you call her on the phone or something? Like <laughs> talk to her and find out. Is she would have upset helped Sarah about and this? Mark's relationship. If she was upset about it, then it really might have even been admirable. Like, oh, it's not just so that he can see her, which I think fathers have a right to see their kids. But uh, yeah, it just seems like, oh, you could have avoided so much. I think the single mindedness, like what I've seen of that character is he's very focused and and single-minded on what he wants, you know, and he is all about what he wants. And you could see that a number of different ways. I think in this one, I think he comes across very selfish, Uh, very selfish in his needs as opposed to, you know, the person who works for him. And he's already been selfish there and his own daughters and his ex-wives. I mean, he, he shouldn't be there. He really shouldn't be there. And, and you kind of wonder if the ex-wife hadn't interacted with him, if he would have been worse. If he kind of checked himself because she's like, I know what you're going to do. You yeah. always do this. <laughs> Don't do it. And so yeah. he's checking himself. But if she wouldn't have known he was there, would he have just went ahead and just kind of bombed it? And, you know, the thing that I'm always so interested in doing is looking at the other perspective. Like, we barely know Sandy. We've had one scene with her. But... Based on what we know of Hank so far, I really, I kind of tended to think she wasn't just being bitchy. You know, I tended to think, yeah. listen to her. <laughs> like She's been through something, <laughs> you know, like I, I just feel like, boy, especially when you're co-parenting. I mean, I don't even think Sarah and Seth interact like this. There's respect there. Yeah. You know, even in their worst times, there's more respect than we saw in that terse Kurt relationship, you know, that scene, that interaction. And so, yeah. Yeah. I wondered what Sandy's opinion of Sarah was. I wondered if she thought they were already an item. You know, Hank introduces Sarah as his assistant. And I don't know what evidence I have to read into this, (laughs) but I, I thought like, does Sandy think, oh, so here's the hot assistant you hired and you're sleeping with her now. Yeah. I assume. And then She's I, and even though we know, like no, it, it only went as far as a kiss in the dark room. But, <laughs> or if Sandy thinks Sarah is sort of like falling prey to his mm. MO or, you know, I did sense maybe a little respect for Sarah when Sarah sensed the tone of that exchange and said, why don't I take Ruby inside and you two can talk? It seemed like Sandy was like, that's a good idea. And that she trusted her to take her daughter away. But I, yeah, I still wonder, like, does she think they're that is bumping uglies? And we, and we <laughs> don't really know anything about his past relationships. So for all we know, Nothing. That, that is something he did. You know, I mean, if, you know, who knows? Well, I don't think yeah. it's a very good sign that he doesn't have respect for Sarah's relationship. You know, I mean, it just makes me wonder what boundaries does well, he Well, he have? doesn't have respect for his ex-wife's thoughts on it, on, you know, because he just shows up. At this thing. I mean, so he doesn't really have respect for anybody, but for what he wants, he just, he just goes for it. Yeah. Yeah. I know we're coming down hard on him, but I think he deserves it. I really do. And I think Sarah does too. I mean, I think that. I mean, honestly, honestly, if I were on the, on the outside 
of one of his desires and I was dealing with him, I would fucking hate him. I mean, he's an asshole. You know, he, he yeah. is probably, I mean, I've seen some characters be pretty selfish on this show, but he's pretty consistently selfish. I mean, and, and really just not caring about what happens, you know, the results of his behavior, the consequences. And even as something as trivial as he doesn't do weddings, it is further evidence of he wants what he wants. And if it's not that he will not make time for it. Like, I don't want to do weddings. Well, that's mostly what photographers do. He doesn't care. Yeah. No, if it's not on his radar, it's invisible. And it's just making me think of all these red flags. Like one of the, I mean, when she first met him, she was really put off by, by comments he would make. Like when she was talking about Drew, you know, Amy breaking up with Drew and he's like, well, what she should do, what he should do is, you know, sleep with her best friend. And she's horrified by that. And I think rightfully so. And now somehow, I don't know how, but all that has like kind of drifted away. And now she's like, I need to rescue this guy. I need to save this guy. Her instincts when she first met him, I think were right. And somehow she's gotten kind of sucked in. Yeah. Melissa and I have talked about this in romantic comedies. The male is often shown as like at all costs, at all costs. You need to wear the woman down, wear her down, you know? And, and I think this is kind of a real world example of that kind of mentality of that kind of selfishness of, this is what it kind of really looks like when somebody just is almost sociopathic in their pursuit of something. <laughs> there are people that are affected by this and there are people that are doing everything they can do to have a good relationship and you are just sabotaging it for your own wants and needs. And, you know, to call Hank a sociopath at this point probably doesn't make sense, but he really just has no zero respect or any kind of consideration for anybody outside his orbit, especially Sarah and Mark. And, you know, that really makes me think of last season, Seth was doing the same thing. Yeah. And Amber, she saw that it was happening and that Sarah was getting sucked in, being drawn into that web. And I think with Seth, it was, I don't think it was malicious and it didn't feel as bad to the viewers, I think, because they have all this history. They, they had history and yeah. children and, you know, it, it does make sense in a way, but I don't think it would have been good for her. And it's like how lucky that Amber did notice that and that she was someone who Seth would listen to. And I don't think we have been shown anyone on this show who would have the power to get through to Hank. Yeah let alone that they would have observed this happening and stepped in on Sarah's behalf. But like, I think Sarah needs to be rescued from herself. Well put. I think Ruby could maybe do it, but Ruby's 11 and isn't noticing any of this. Yeah. There's no possible way. But you know, when, and and I, I did see, I, I think my last episode did deal with, with Sarah and her ex some, and I did see some of this, but you know, with, with her ex, he was trying to get back to what he once had. He's trying to like rectify the things that he's missed out on and rectify his mistakes. Is he doing it at her expense? Sure. He's doing it at her expense. Do other things get minimized in his pursuit of this? Sure. But they have that history. They have that. And she's allowing him to do it. In this particular case, you know, I mean, I don't know that. I mean, Sarah's allowing it to happen, but he's going to do it no matter what. And she's an employee of his. She's a fucking employee of his. And this is a complete and total power move on his part because she has to be audience to this garbage that he's spewing because he pays her check. 
And so he can yeah. say whatever he wants and he can put her in these positions and he can do these things. And I think it's pretty troubling. I haven't seen all their interactions, but it's pretty troubling. And she's participating in it. Mm-hmm. Like, she's buying into it. Yeah. Cause her, her decision to come on the trip was all her doing. It was her doing, but he, uh, I mean, yeah, he concocted this, uh, framework and then she goes, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he just kind of guilt tripped her, you know, into it. Yeah. It's tricky because I think he did guilt trip her, but I think, She's like weirdly drawn to him. She's complicit in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't mean to skip ahead, but I know at some point, I'm sure you're going to play the breakup. And the way that he calls out, the that Mark calls out the comparison to Seth, I was like, good. I'm glad he did that. And, and I don't know that it really made much of an impact on her because she like immediately got defensive and said, you know, he's the father of my children about Seth instead of like really taking a hard look at what he was saying, which is this is, yeah. you know, Caleb, you put it so beautifully last episode that she thinks love is like, f- like fixing other people's messes or something. And the idea that that means she can't see Mark who doesn't need her to fix his messes because he's like really self-sufficient and healthy that maybe she just can't love him the same way she can love someone who needs help. And I'm just like, Oh, that's just such a troubling image. I mean, that's another image women get in rom-coms is like, you have to like fix the broken man instead of Mm. just choosing a person who can be a healthy equal and partner where you don't have to fix each other. You can just love each other and be together because you want to be and not because you you need, you know, help. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. When Mark is revealed to have Ugh. come to L.A. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was just devastating to me. I immediately thought of the phrase betrayal of trust, you know, that she betrayed his trust. And, and I thought Mark had to have had a suspicion yeah. of what was happening with her and Hank. But he put it aside to at least some degree. And I presume that's because he trusted her. Like he was going to give her the benefit of the doubt. You say nothing's going on with him. Although I'm not sure she actually did ever say that. But she would have said that. Yeah. So he, he gave her his trust. And what did she do with it? Just took a steaming dump all over it. (laughs) And yes, even though what she is saying in their fight is technically true, that nothing had happened physically mm-hmm. up to that point, I still thought it was a total betrayal. What was that? What was that, Sarah? Nothing. That was nothing. It I fell in like the nothing. hallway because I'm drunk, okay? Right, Being and you had your silly. arm around him and I your shoes off. I just was holding on because I was drunk. He wasn't, the bar's right there. He just, yeah, we just, he was just so walking was gonna happen? what was going to happen after this? If nothing. I wasn't here, what was going to happen? Nothing. Nothing was going to happen. That's not what it looked like. That's not what it looked like because you were laughing and you were all over laughing. I was just laughing. This is what you chose instead of to come away with me for the weekend. You chose to be here for work and then I come here and I see you like on a, in like a romantic. It wasn't romantic. No. Like I walked in on you no, guys. No, you didn't. I interrupted walk in on your anything. special private. How could you private... say that? I would never do that. You know what's the stupidest would... thing no. about all of this what? is that I I felt really bad that I called you a lousy fiance and I got your message and you sounded really sad. So I made up some excuse and I got on a plane to come apologize to you because I thought that's what we should do. That's come back and figure it out with Sarah. And then I come back and here and I, here you are with. No, this, no. Your boss. You know me. Because you know I'll... that I would not do something right, right, like right. that. Can we please just, just forget it? You know what? I, 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 no, I need to please get don't go. I, You're I, scaring me. I, I, I can't talk to you right now. I, I have a hard time believing 
that nothing was going to happen there. And this is a guy who had tried to kiss her and kissed her before. And yet she's yeah. still in this position with him. And I think that, you know, it's a it's a very impeccably written scene because you don't know what's going to happen. And and it's it's very, you know, his reaction is so realistic. He's it, like you say, it's devastating. Like what you know, and he's stammering all over his lines. It's fantastic. But I think I think that, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen only because he was there. But it certainly didn't look like. Like, I didn't know he was going to be there. And as they turn the corner, I'm like, oh, she's going to cheat on him. I mean, you know, and she hasn't proven and shown me anything that makes me think that that something wasn't going to happen. It may have not been a full-blown affair, but a kiss has already happened. He is not backing down. He's not changing. He's not respecting her boundaries. He's not shirking away from her. She's draping herself on him. I mean, I I feel like Mark is again, right. And sadly for him, he's right. You know, he's just not in the wrong. (laughs) I completely agree. Especially what you said about the kiss that they had. And I thought in a universe in which she actually doesn't have feelings for Hank, Everything she said in this scene could be true. Mm -hmm. But I think Mark knows that that's not true, which is why everything she's saying rings so hollow. And then for us, the viewers who do know that she has kissed Hank and kept that information from him, for her to say things like, you know I would never do that, to me feels straight up deceitful. Like not only does he not know that, he doesn't know that you've already lied about that. And the thing is you could make the argument that Sarah didn't do anything wrong in the dark room because, you know, okay, maybe Hank kissed her, she pulled away. But I, I think she did something wrong by keeping that information from Mark. Unless she was like, okay, I'm going to quit my job. And, you know, unless she like somehow was professional with him, but I still think she should have told him. Or truly had no feelings. Like, Yeah. The kiss is one thing, and she handles it the way she's going to handle it. But now she's in a hotel with mm-hmm. her boyfriend across the country. She's leaning all over him. She knows he has feelings for her. She knows her boyfriend's nowhere to be found, and she is acting <sighs> the way that she is acting. Yeah. Yeah. To a man who kissed her before and has told her he's interested in her and makes it very clear that he doesn't respect her relationship there's no other way to spin that kid so i just i think that that is where you know regardless of what she tells mark if she tells him or not she is acting in a way that is super deceitful if she's like holding it from him for her own reasons but then she acts in accordance like you're not gonna have after hour drinks with your boss in the hotel which is not really and walk let him walk you back to the room and 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 like create that i i hate to say this i don't want to sound like because in a way she's a victim in in the in the you know in the kiss scene in the first kiss scene she did not ask for that that was i saw that scene it wasn't my scene but i saw it she you know that that is something that is almost tragic when shit like that happens and he shouldn't have done that but she's done nothing to create boundaries. She's done nothing to, she in fact just continues to let him bowl over those boundaries and get more personal and more personal. And that just tells me that she's interested in him. Yeah. And she so likes quit, it. you yeah. know, and, and then she just straight up, and like you say, is just lying to Mark. She's just straight up lying to him. Yeah, nothing happened, but I would never do that as not true because yeah. you were about to do that. And I just yeah. don't even understand. Why she's even with Mark if, you know, I mean, like, is it because on some level she knows this is who I should be with? I get that. Yeah, I, I do think she knows that. I think she knows that, too. And I, think she, and she I do think she loves him. 
I, that's true. I don't think it's as simple as she doesn't love Mark anymore. Now she only loves no. Hank. In fact, there was a really interesting scene where she tells Hank, like after the big fight with Mark, she tells him, I can't, it's my job is not to fix you or something like that. Yeah. And then she says, I have my own life and I'm not even focused on it because I'm focused on you. And she even says it like not blaming him or not even mad at him, but like puzzled, genuinely like puzzled. She, like she finally realized it. Yeah. And she's like, why am I doing it? Like she doesn't even know why. Let's talk about, because I wanted to talk about the same scene. I felt like I saw a parallel between her and Hank. In the way that Hank came to L.A. thinking, I've got to fix this situation with Ruby. And then it took almost nothing at all for him to realize there's nothing to be fixed. Mm-hmm. It's just going to happen anyway, and I need to deal with that. Sarah came to L.A., I think, thinking she was going to fix Hank. And I think it took Mark showing up and the danger of losing him for mm-hmm. her to realize, I have gone way too far down this path. And it's a really bad idea because I think she did realize it. And I that's what I read into her behavior in this scene. I also want to tell you what I was thinking. I was thinking um, I'm going to ask Ruby if she comes to, wants to come to Berkeley, you know, live with me. Call uh-huh. me yes, God, please. Yes. Same check. Uh, yeah, no, fine. no, it's, it's separate. OK. What do you think of that? What? What do you think about Ruby coming to live with me? She should have the choice, right? I mean, that's only... You know, Hank, it's not my job to fix you. Okay. Uh... I'm sorry. I had an exceptionally bad night, and um, Mark is not answering the phone. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. You know, I have a life, and I'm not focused on it. Because I'm thinking about your life. It doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, I got it. You're a very nice guy, but I need to... Said I got it. Is he I a mean, very that... nice guy? No. That sounds like a breakup scene. I mean, yeah. when she says yeah. you're a very nice guy, that to me was like, oh, she's ready to sever ties with him. I think she should. And what's strange... I mean, I'm just thinking this right now. If Mark hadn't broken up with her at the end of this episode, I think she might have quit her job. Wow. But then once she doesn't have Mark, then I think it's, well, okay. You're right. Double down on this mistake. Man. Yeah, I was thinking about how I haven't seen a lot of interactions with her and Hank, but it just seems like right now, like for him to even hear her, she has to be almost toxic to him. Like the way that she says, you know, and I think that's that's familiar ground for her, but I don't have a whole lot to go. But something just occurred to me. This is not the first time she's hooked up with her boss, is it? No. No. Billy Did, Baldwin. She, yeah. That fucking Billy Baldwin. <laughs> They're <laughs> always all the worst, too. Yeah. Of all of them. No. Billy. Billy. And <laughs> the worst you know, but, Baldwin. Of but there, there's something going on here. And obviously, the this is what we're supposed to see with this character. We're supposed to see this flawed. You know, it's not something that's unfolding before our eyes. This is obviously supposed to be who she is. I mean, she she just jumped right into that one, too. I, I watched some of that, you know, and, and uh, it did not end well. She chose him her. over the nice guy, the forklift Mike, too. You know, like forklift both yeah. Mike? How can you choose over forklift Mike? I know. Both times she picked, like, the sort of, I don't know. I, I think there's a, maybe a parallel there. She, But I think at least pe- Billy Baldwin was like, 
flashy and rich and like wooter, you know, and like, like, I mean, what the hell is Ray Romano doing? Like buying coffee in a diner and talking about himself. This is not sexy. <laughs> yeah. I just felt through that scene. It's like, oh, she just learned her lesson a little too late. Yeah, I think if so. she had realized this a day earlier, I'm just not gone I on thought, the trip. No, I need to go to the wedding. Yeah. Uh, and and when she says it's not my job to fix you, I don't think she's responding to some long held like position of Hank's. I think it's her giving herself a wake-up call. Yeah. yeah. Good call. And since our last podcast, I've been thinking about what you said then, Melissa, about Hank and wondering how intentional he is about what he's trying to do here. And I'm I'm becoming more and more dubious about how consciously he's trying to break them up. I don't think it's plausible that he's oblivious. He's no. not trying to wedge his way in at all. I mean, this episode makes that, I think, Really clear. And then little things like in that scene I just played, him trying to put them on the same check. That was what Maybe I was going to say. Maybe that's innocuous. No, but to we're me, together. Like, that is, we're that's separate. chipping away. Yeah, that's chipping away at this other couple. And earlier in the episode, when he's saying, uh, I should have realized this sooner, he tells Sarah, I wrote it down because I wanted to get, he said, I made you come here. Yeah. I mean, so he, I mean, that's kind of admission of he had a plan. It's like, that's, that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, he knew that his words were working. It was it wasn't like by yeah. begging her to come. It was sort of the opposite. Like, oh, do whatever you want. I, I'm in this terrible position, but no, no, don't worry about it. Well, it's also her livelihood. I mean, that's the other thing is that it's not just about him. It's about she has to think like, well, is he going to hire somebody else? Is he going to, yeah. you know, is is am I going to lose my job because because yeah. sometimes that's what you have to do as an assistant. If she's really looking out for herself, she does have to think like, I I don't have a job if I don't do this. And and I understand that part of it. I think we're looking at it purely from the relationship side. But in real life, she would be worried about that. And he would be able to uh, manipulate that, which he is, which he totally is. He's not saying I'm going to fire you. Right. But because he yeah. hires you, it's implicit that he can fire her. And yeah. that is what we talk about a lot, you know, when we talk about power dynamics and when we talk about... What is sexual harassment or what is what is consent within power dynamics? What where is she consenting here when her everything that her livelihood and lifestyle and everything is tied to his decision making? How much does the power dynamic actually work? How much is she actually attracted to him or doing what she needs to what she should be doing or and how much is she actually having to look out for herself because he can pull those strings? And it's partly because he's blurred all those lines, you know, like. He's not yeah. just acting professionally towards her. I, and it's weird. It's, 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 he's her boss. He's attracted to her. He's kissed her and he's told her that he's interested. And he's also like, she's his only friend. She's who he calls when he's drunk and can't call a cab. Like, it's just, whew, it's even worse, I think, than just being someone who hits on the employee. It's like, he's making her... His everything or something, and and do yeah. you think that's what, that he understands? That's what she wants, though, because she does want to be somebody's everything, and she does want to have these things. Like, does he understand that, or is that just is it just they're just drawing together? Because that all goes back to her insecurity, and and feeling... I wish I knew more about addiction because I've heard about in patterns of addiction like codependency, codependency. yes, and mm. I heard this from a Stephen King interview. I don't think he coined this phrase though. But he said codependency is when you're drowning and someone else's life flashes before your eyes. Whoa. And 
her in that scene saying, I'm not focusing on my life because I'm focusing on yours. That is what, I mean, that is mm. what the conflict was in the last episode about trying to sort. She was bending over backwards, trying to figure out a way to go on this trip that meant nothing to her. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't have, right. but it clearly did. What Hank needed was more important than what she needed or wanted. It's like, what is going on there, Sarah? You need to unpack that. Man, it just kind of makes me want to cry now that we're breaking it down. I know it sounds... It's very sad. It's really sad. I think it's sadder for, than... For everyone. Yeah. Maybe not so much Hank, but <laughs> for Sarah and Mark. I, I get that she's caught up in it and that she's made mistakes. And I kind of vacillate between feeling angry with her and sort of sorry for her. You know, I, I think I... I guess I feel both at once. But ultimately, I think it's sad that she is arguably losing the healthiest thing that's ever happened to her in, in this yeah. relationship with Mark. I really think he's not perfect or anything like that, but like we have known him since season one. There is nothing toxic about him, in my opinion. You know, we have seen him. He is held up. He, the, t- the test of time has done better for him than Adam, you know, than other people. Like there's just... I thought about Mark's whole arc through yeah, the series also. I thought about it in the scene in the gym when mm-hmm. she finds him in the gym, which I thought was really nice. I, I felt like both characters were behaving really rationally. They had just had a big blow up. They gave each other space. They came together when they were both more calm. They apologized. They made a plan to hash things out. Yeah. I, like this cooler heads have prevailed. This is good. But they haven't ignored the fight. Right. And there's no guarantee things will be okay. But the, this is all good. And even though Mark was very understanding, mm-hmm. maybe too much, I still think, you know, if he wants to salvage the relationship, you have to make a concession and hear the other person out. And I think at that point he did want to salvage it. Uh, but anyway, but I, I thought of it at the end of the scene, the camera lingered on Mark as he started to run again. And I thought back to season one. And I thought, man, he was just Amber's teacher then. And Amber had a little crush on him and Sarah really headed off. And it, that could have been the end of it. Yeah. But then he stuck around and he's always been really charming, but he has not always had a lot of depth to his character. And I felt like bit by bit through the seasons, they just flesh him out little by little so that he's not just this great banter partner. Right. But he's a multi-dimensional character unto himself. And especially this season, while I've hated... What they're the doing stuff to him? He's gone through. Yeah. yeah. That has, I think, really revealed the most about who he is. You know, that it's it's not that he doesn't have a temper. It's not that he won't say something hurtful, like you're a lousy fiance. He can be pushed to that point, but it's gonna take something legitimate to push him there and he'll feel bad about it after. I'm like, okay, I know a lot of people like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I was really struck in that same gym scene. Well, just what a good actor Jason Ritter is. I don't know if we talk about that enough, yeah. but I thought the hurt and the way he just kept saying, let me just get back to the running. Like, I'll, I'll meet up with you later. Like, you could just tell he looked like he was trying not to cry and he just like needed to not be with her for a moment. Like He was still collecting his thoughts. I was just like, man, he is good. He is more than just charming. Yeah. Yeah. And when I think back to that scene, I'm now struck by the image of him being on the treadmill so that he's physically taller than her. Yeah. And throughout the scene, she's looking up at him, like actually tipping her chin up. And it's like she's begging. I mean, and but that is what she's doing in that scene. I think at that point, she is begging, please don't leave me. So 
Dylan K. Masson, if that was your call, good call. Yeah. Well, I think another interesting thing about that follow-up scene where she's with Hank is that he never brings up what happened in the hotel. He doesn't yeah. ask her, is everything okay with Mark? <laughs> I mean, that is a serious shit. More I mean, tunnel vision. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not Tell even brought up. Tell me what you think of my daughter. Like because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just goes straight into that. Me, me, me. And I, I think that's some really good... Um, <laughs> I mean, you would think even the most callous of people would address it, would be like, ugh, that was rough. But instead, it's like, she has to say, I had a rough night with Mark. And he's like, oh, like, what the fuck? I mean, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I just thought that he, that that framing of that scene really, I think, shows you where Hank is right now. Mm-hmm. Is he is in Hank's own world and he gives zero shits about how it affects Sarah. Zero. He does not care. And then, yeah. and then I, if I'm to jump ahead, you know, the scene kind of ends with, with him saying, how was your night? And she says, lousy. And he was, you know, how was your night? Lousy. And then, so you see a little character growth there, I guess <laughs> if it's growth uh, or yeah, he just needs to true. say that he had a lousy night. So he asks, and I don't even remember who asked first anyway. I think, I think he says his wasn't good. She asks first, but at of least course he she would, does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This fucking guy. It's crazy though to hear. It, it makes me oddly appreciate the character and Ray Romano because as we discuss all of these things about him out of the context of actually watching it, it is just a catalog of red flags yes. and toxic <laughs> behavior. Yeah. But then to see it, it doesn't beat you over the head with no. it. And, and to me, I'm like, this is how it happens. I mean, when you, when you hear about horrible behavior and you think how, I mean, why weren't you just running for the hills? Cause it's not black and white. It's, it's these insidious, subtle things. Yeah. And you might think, well, he's charming and he's fun and he's kind of mopey and he's a sad sack. And it's like, uh, he's manipulating you. I mean, he's probably not even aware of it. Totally aware. of Maybe it. Maybe not. Well, Mark's like, maybe. Yeah. He's somewhat aware of it. Okay. Well, Oh, this is actually a great segue. Cause I, you know, with my newfound distrust of hang. <laughs> from, <laughs> oh, from I know what that, you're going to play now. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered, I was like, okay, so maybe he has concocted this whole thing. And then this scene kind of threw a wrench in it. I didn't know what to think. Hey, can I say something? Sarah has just been really helpful, you know, like a shoulder to lean on. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's been great. She knew this whole thing was a sham professionally and... A sham? What do you mean a sham? I mean, I just, I booked this job as an excuse just to get face-to-face with my daughter. Well, Sarah knew that? Yeah, yeah. Uh... uh I guess, but the point is, even though she knew that, she came anyway to help. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, maybe cut her a little slack. I should cut her some slack. Yeah, maybe. No. Well, maybe you should mind your own business. (laughs) (laughs) So if I give Hank the benefit of the doubt, he wasn't calculating, he wasn't trying to make any of this happen. This scene actually makes a whole lot more sense. I, I, would, I can see how he'd think he was helping Sarah's case. She's not putting her job above you. She's just being really nice and helping out a friend. 
But if I think of him as masterminding the whole thing, then this is a pretty wild, like, 3D chess move. I'll act like I'm pleading her case, but really I'm just sabotaging her all along. It falls apart. But Mark, you said something early on in this conversation tonight that I think is it. I think it's just of no consequence to him if their relationship falls apart. That's fine. So I, I and there's a, a wide spectrum between oblivious and duplicitous mastermind. Right. He's somewhere in the middle there. Yes. I and I don't think that I mean, I think that he's aware of what he's doing at times, and I don't think that he really gives a shit what happens. But I think that what this scene came from is not it's not because he's trying to I don't think he's I think he's giving up. I think he's actually he saw how it affected her. She's just like, I'm not even interested in talking to you anymore. He's like, this isn't, this didn't work. Mm. You know, the, I didn't, the payout didn't work. So he's just like, fine, he fucking wins. I'll, I'll just tell this guy, you know, I'll say, try to say some nice things and, and they can be together and whatever. And I mean, I think that's really what it is. I think it's more of like kind of throwing in the towel a little bit, but little does he know is he just like reignited the whole thing, you know? So I don't, yeah. I don't think he meant to at all. Like, I, and I don't think it registers with him that he did. I don't think he has any idea because he doesn't know that Sarah was lying or understood that he was making up the whole thing. He doesn't, he just doesn't get it, you know? So I, yeah. I think I, I don't feel like, I just feel like this is a more of a, He's just like, well, fine, you know, whatever. I, I'll just try to get these two kids to make up and, and I'll move on to something else here. And then <laughs> I genuinely did not know what to make of that scene. I really, really I think what I wrote in my notes was like, is there any universe in which Hank is actually trying to help? And I don't I just don't know. I don't know that he's actively trying to help. I Part of me is like, how could he think this would help to say she, this is a sham she just knew that I needed her and she came anyway. Like, even though the job was a sham, to me, it feels a little bit like I win, but, but that might be too far. I can't, I don't, I don't have any real conviction behind it, yeah. you know? And I do like what we've settled on. It's not that he's, it's not a soap opera where he's like, what can I say to break them up? I really don't think it's that. I really like the thing. It's of no consequence to him. It's like, great if they break up, cool. You know, like, and if, you know what? Yeah, if they if they stay together, fine, I tried. I think it's more like that, which I actually think is worse when you compare that sort of laissez-faire attitude that Hank maybe has for Sarah compared to Mark's genuine <laughs> deep feelings, <laughs> but whatever. Although even as we're talking about it now, though, it feels like it's actually not that mastermindy to just say like you know she did this because she really cares about me i mean that's what he's saying yeah it's like she didn't come down here because of love for her job she came down here out of personal devotion to me and so yes, cut her some could, slack and yes that's you could read that as cut her some slack because your girlfriend is really caring mm -hmm. this is you know a great quality of hers but it at the same time yeah. it's also she's really caring about me and not you because <laughs> you were had plans with her already and she already told me about them and we just and all she said to you was it's become this very complicated thing yeah and it didn't she just she chose and you know what just the title of this episode trouble in Candyland," is a line that he says to sarah and you know the the, the implication that it would be trouble in Candyland because mark is younger than she is 
is so ironic to me because he's so much more like responsible and mature. And it's just like, you know what? This is fucking Candyland. What you've pulled, Hank. Like this is yeah. ridiculous. This is And you know, while we're doing flashbacks, let's flash back to Hank's first episode when he's taking the family portrait and he clocks who Mark is. Yep. He asks Max, who's that? And already something is, you know, he thinks that that's odd. Mm -hmm. And sure, it could be the age thing. Although, frankly, Lauren Graham doesn't just look a whole lot older than Jason Ritter. But I don't know. I mean, I'm reading in a lot there, but they included that scene and it was not for no reason. No. They were planting a seed already. From that very first episode. Hank clearly was attracted to her. Yes. Oh, she's taken. Who's my competition? That's him. Okay, then I'll say Make-A-Wish Foundation Kid. I'll say <laughs> is a paper route. I'll just continue to... Yeah, which there's are a lot funny of material there. There's a lot of material, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. So anyway. <laughs> and I don't... I think he cares about Sarah. I think Hank does. I don't, I don't think that he doesn't... Oh, yeah. You know, he I cares very much. It's the relation. It's just whatever, whatever cost that she has to pay for his actions, he doesn't care about. Which, Which therein, could you say, does he actually care about her? Right, because that's not what love is, right? right? Yeah. He's yeah. Just, yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess that's interesting that you say how you guys read into that scene. I hadn't really thought about that, that, you know, he's he's basically saying, I think I kind of thought it was maybe his fucked up way of just saying, like, we're friends and she's trying to be my friend, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which could be. Well, and you could also, in, in terms of like how much does he care about her, you could also read it as... You know, like you said, if he thinks that he lost, if Hank thinks he lost the battle over Sarah between he and Mark, he would be determining that from his scene with her where she says, it's not my job to fix you, which is kind of Sarah and Hank's breakup scene. If he thinks, okay, I tried, I didn't get her. She had this near miss with Mark and now she's recommitting to Mark. I've lost my chance. I'll tell Mark, like, hey, you know, if this is still iffy, if I'm not going to get her, she shouldn't also lose you, too. It's a very ambiguous scene. Well, it's I think, well, it's, well, and it's ambiguous because. And the I mean lines, that as a compliment. Yeah. yeah and the lines yeah. have been blurred, too, because maybe he doesn't want to lose her as an employee. So, <laughs> so he, yeah. you know, and, and that's. <laughs> Who else is going to put up with this? That's bullshit. part of the problem, right? So, so it could just be like, well, I'm going to smooth it over with these guys and, and then she can at least be my employee still and we'll go on, you know? <laughs> and he's just so ineffective at communicating and being a selfless person. <laughs> it, just, <laughs> it just fucking implodes, you oh know? And, and I thought that, uh, and I think your comment about uh, Mark's character continues to be true in this statement. Like he, his character grows another notch there. Like he just growls at yeah, Hank. And I it's fantastic. Like, it's not, you mind your business. Yeah, it's yeah. not toxic at all. He's not like trying to fight him. He's just like, shut the fuck up. He doesn't up. call him an asshole or no, yeah, he, he just, just says, says maybe like, you mind your business. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit what you say. You know what? And, yeah. and it's just like, and he shouldn't, honestly. No. From Mark's point of view, Hank should not be anywhere near their relationship. It should not be anywhere close to his responsibility to mend things up between the two of them. It should not. So yeah. he's right. He's completely right. Hank is just out of his element. Well, we've referred to it, but let's hear the breakup. He said that it was a, it was a sham and that he really booked the job so that he could talk to his daughter face to face and that maybe but it doesn't mean it's a sham it was an actual job right but 
but he told me that you knew that he needed someone to be here with him, and that's why you came. He needed you more, more than, than I needed you. I thought I was doing the right thing, and I didn't. It was the wrong. It was wrong. It's. He needed you like, like Seth needed you. Seth's the father of my I children. I know. Well, with Seth, I understood. And he was dealing with his addiction, and I, I, I let you do what you wanted to do, and I waited for you because, well, because you're amazing, and I love you, and you're worth waiting for. But you, you, I feel like you do this thing where every time there's something good in your life, something that's making you feel good about yourself or anything like that, you, you, you just run away from it. And I, I don't know what that is in you that, that chose to come here instead of come to this wedding with your fiance, but I just, uh, I really love you, but I can't do this anymore. Well, I just realized that Mark is basically saying it's not his job to fix her. Whoa, yeah. I hadn't thought that yet. You know what I wondered, just listening to it back, I wondered if he didn't really know where this speech was going. Like, it seemed to me like maybe he wasn't launching into it as a breakup. But, Mm. like, as he's talking, it's like, I can't. (laughs) Do you know? There's only one direction this leads in. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm right about that. Maybe that was his plan ever since he talked to Hank in the elevator. But, I mean, he just talked to Hank in the elevator. He's processing. So... He doesn't know, but I just thought it was so insightful what he says to her. Like, yeah. you do this thing. You have something good. You run away from it. And it's true. It all stems from her, like, low self-esteem, I think. I don't know if she thinks she deserves something stable. Or maybe she's bored by something stable. I don't know. And more kudos to Jason Ritter, because I think probably why you made that observation is because it really does sound like he is coming up with these words in the moment. It does not sound like an actor who's memorized his lines. Which, of course, is what you always wanted to sound like. But right. this really did. It's like, yeah, he's, he's yeah, I just I mean, the, me- the stammering and the messing up of words and switching words. And, and uh, Lorelai, um, Sarah does it, too. I mean, it's just <laughs> outstanding. It's like, yeah. You know, it's it just feels very real. Like, they're just, they're talking over each other. And it's not like that kind of can thing that you get sometimes and and they're they're leaving their lines and going into something else and it's just it's very well played like the all of their interactions in this in this uh, episode are awesome I think I mean they're sad but the acting delivery is amazing yeah yeah I you know you mentioned that I made the Seth comparison last time I swear I didn't remember this scene until I watched it and I might have said what I said last week because somewhere in my mind I actually did remember this. Oh, yeah. And I thought, oh, he's saying exactly what I said. So, I, yeah, I think it must have been stored somewhere in there. Maybe, but I think it's just so clear. Like, I think. Oh, and then hearing him say it, I thought this must have been in the writer's room like all season yeah. when they were developing the character of Hank. They must have decided what is Sarah's like fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. And it's. It's that she thinks caretaking is love and she needs someone unstable to take care of. And it's funny, as we've been talking about that, we always make comparisons to her and Lorelai and, you know, Hank is Luke and Mark is Max. And 
what would you say Lorelai's flaw was in relationships? Like, I, to mm. me, I think it would have been that she had to be in charge. Mm. I think she had spent so much time by necessity mm-hmm. taking care of herself, doing things her own way. And she had reached a very happy place in her life that was very hard fought. And so she couldn't live at Luke's. She couldn't let him decorate the room. She couldn't mm, that's true. <laughs> compromise with anyone. It's like Lorelai is the pilot of her ship. And if you want to be on the ship, you just got to be a passenger. You're not going to co-pilot, which is maybe not great. But if that's the way you're built, there are people who will jump on board. And I thought that is a big difference. Yeah. You know, that is not Sarah's flaw. No. And in fact... Here's a very big difference between Hank and Luke, who I know we've both been like, the curmudgeon, you know, like lives above his (laughs) place of work. They're the same, but they're not the same because Luke very respectfully loved her from afar while she was in other relationships and never once tried to like interfere almost to his detriment. Like he should have probably swooped in one of those times when she was single, but he certainly (laughs) never kissed her while she was with someone else. He also was never her boss, so there's no power dynamic. And he also, I think, is the healthiest relationship she ever had, as opposed to Hank. You know, like, I I think they were true equals, and he respects her. And so I think it's a real broad brush that I was painting with when I was like, they're the same, all these three, you know? So I don't think it's quite... But no, it's... (laughs) I think it was a valid observation. Yeah. In that breakup scene, it is... You know, had Mark not broken up with her, I felt like Sarah was at a place where she would have been willing to cop to the fact that, yes, I have had feelings for Hank. Yes, I shouldn't have done this. Yes, something is going on here. But this has clarified my thinking. I'm not going to be around Hank anymore. I'm committing to you. But I I don't blame Mark at all if at this point it's like too little too late. Yeah. Because he like, I mean, you both said... He's been as understanding as a person could be expected to be. And that didn't change her mind. I also want to reiterate something I think we would all agree with. But we've all said, like, you know, she should quit her job. Of course she shouldn't have to. She should not have been put in that position. Right. It should not totally. be on her to go find a new career. But I, I will stand with she could keep this job and create boundaries. And if he doesn't, yeah. if he doesn't fall within those boundaries, then she can come after his ass and she can <laughs> shift the power dynamic. That's a good But point. she's not. She's getting drunk with him and leaning <laughs> on him in the hallway while her boyfriend is across the country or wherever, you know, across, a flight away. So, yeah. so that's not what she's doing, you know, like, and, and I don't ever want, like, I, I think it's blaming the victim to say, well, she could find another job. She could definitely start setting herself up to look for another job, but she could also set boundaries that he has to follow. And if he doesn't follow his ass is in trouble, like she's going to sue him or whatever and, yeah. and put him down, you know, like a dog, like a, like a bad <laughs> dog. And, you know, <laughs> just a worthless sick dog. A nobody loves Hank dog. Okay, I gotta go to the bathroom. I actually kind of have to go to the bathroom too. We have two bathrooms, so we'll just. I could do it. Okay, all right. Okay. Happy peeing, everyone. Okay. <laughs> and we're back from the bathroom. Here's my final Hank Sarah Mark thought. 
even though they're both miserable, the end between Hank and Sarah felt to me like they are united Mm -hmm. in their misery. Like it's just reinforcing that Sarah thinks that's where she belongs with this like other black sheep. And for a minute after their breakup, I thought, oh, does she now sleep with Hank? And then Mark comes back to get back together. But by that point, she's wrecked it. And I realized, no, that's one Gilmore Girls plot line (laughs) that was not reincarnated (laughs) on Parenthood. But I think Sarah should quit her job now anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I think she shouldn't be anywhere near Hank. Hank ruined your life. It's arguable how much he meant to or how complicit you were in it, but it is ruined. (laughs) You've got to just get rid. But I sadly felt like, oh, (laughs) now that she has no other options, she's just going to stay with this guy, isn't she? You know what's so weird? I remember, you know, obviously I've always loved Sarah and Mark. They're probably my favorite couple on the show, despite it all. I've said that a lot. But I know in the past I thought, oh, it's so sad that they break up. But, you know, I like Hank. I like Ray Romano. He's very charming. This is fine, too. I remember feeling that way. And now I'm so angry, like somehow it's like unpacking this that I'm like, do I ever like Hank again? We'll see going forward. We'll find out. But I I am like a little taken aback by how angry I am. Like, I I feel like it goes beyond TV or something that I just I, I don't like it in life when people are like this when they they just sort of with no regard kind of come crashing in like like a wrecking ball and you know just Miley Cyrus all over that shit I don't know I don't I don't like it and it it is something that happens not just to characters I mean something about the way it all played out felt very real like you've both commented on how ambiguous the scene was when he's there and you know we don't know if they're gonna sleep together or not I feel like in a real TV show, they would have slept together and he would have caught them doing that. You know, it felt very real, all of it to me, even her not understanding her own actions. You know, it didn't feel like, like, oh, well, the script is very clearly defined and laid out. I I don't, anyway, those are my And I also think it didn't feel like, oh, this script is really poorly written. I don't understand why this character is behaving this way. I thought it was an ambiguity. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. It was an ambiguity that felt lifelike. We don't always know why we do what we do. Why did I do that? Why did I just blow that up? Yeah. I also think another question that'll be good to keep in mind going forward is, does the way a couple get together define Mm. their relationship going forward? That is something I have wondered in real life a lot. Do you think it does? It can be hard sometimes to do the right thing. It can be hard to acknowledge that other people have a stake. Even if you feel like you're entitled to something, even if you feel like it's your choice to make it, you have to understand that your actions reverberate with other people. And that, that is, I mean, that that's the case, right? Like you can't just, you can't just keep pointing to everything and be like, well, I made this mistake 12 years ago, or I, just because we got together this way, you're going to judge me for it. Not necessarily. A lot of people are going to judge you on how you handle getting together that way. If you got together that way and you just continue to act like that and act like you're entitled to something that you never earned and continue to crash in on people's lives and continue to just have your hand out and really not do anything and not acknowledge the hurt that you've caused, 
it's not because of that. It's not because of the way you got together. It's because you're selfish. The way you got together is indicative of being a selfish person. And the way you're acting now, it continues to make you a selfish person. You are looking out for yourself first. And that's what's happening. There's no one way to handle it. But owning your actions and asking people or talking to people about your even your point of view in it and understanding that they may not, you may not think that they have the right to have an opinion about it, but they do. If you're, if you're worried about what they think, if you're, if you're pointing fingers at them for thinking a certain way or judging you, then they do have the right to think that way because you care what they think, whether it be your daughter or your, or your son or friends. Yeah. And I think that deliberate action and, and ownership of your actions and, and doing things in a mindful way, you don't have to do it perfectly. It's doing it in a way that you're just like, I understand how, how this affects everything around me. And you don't have to not do it, but understand the disruption you're causing and own the disruption. Just own it. Yeah. Just own the disruption and own the fact. And you don't have to be anybody's punching bag. You don't even have to apologize to people. Just own it. Just be like, I understand that this is uncomfortable for you. I understand how it makes you feel, you know? Yeah. But this is what we're going to do. <laughs> You know, we'll see how that happens with these fictional characters. (laughs) It hadn't even occurred to me until now. Drew is the character I'm thinking of most of all. Yeah. Sarah moved him out of his home into Mark's home. And presumably now she's going to move him him right right back. back. Yeah. And it was a big ask of Drew. I think he had a right to be thrown off by that. And he was a good sport about it. And how emotionally attached was he to Mark? And now that is being ripped away. Are they going to own that? Has Sarah owned much of her? I mean, I haven't seen Sarah own a whole lot. I mean, the fact that she didn't own either kiss, like, I mean, again, we've debated to what extent she was responsible for the Hank kiss, but she also kissed Seth and never told Mark about it which I didn't blame her for until she did it again. <laughs> and then it's like, well, this is a pattern. And, and I just think, yeah, maybe she doesn't own stuff the way she should. And in fact, it was very gaslighty, that speech where, you know, we talked about it. Where she's like, you know me. You know I would never do that. You know, it's like. You did it twice. You did it twice. So And Mark still doesn't know that. No, he doesn't know about either one. And it just makes me very He broke sad. up with her without that information. Without that information. Because somehow, yeah. Well, and even when they were calm and talking again, she still didn't own it. I mean, it, it's, it, it's one thing to, you know, know you're busted in the hotel lobby and not own it. That's one thing. But after coming back to it and having a talk and just continuing to gaslight him i think i think is fair because yeah it wasn't until that breakup scene when she said the words i was wrong it was wrong yeah yeah and at that point like we said too too far a little too late i do think she means it at that point i think that's a really interesting take that she might have quit her job that maybe if he hadn't broken up with her i could actually see it going down that way i think she really yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the veil was Fasc- lifted from yeah. her eyes. Fascinating. It reminded me of this song from the musical Aida called I Know the Truth. And the last line of the song is, I learned it a little too late. Yeah. Oh. It's like, uh, Sarah learned it too late. But also with Sarah, if Mark wasn't in the hallway, it's a different episode. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And then right. what does she? Yeah. Then Ooh. what? Yeah. It's, it's a tough episode for her. And if someone told yeah. me they were interested in me while I was with someone else... 
I would not feel comfortable or safe drinking with them alone. I was just thinking that, yeah. I wouldn't feel That's comfortable. intimacy. And yes. Getting drunk with someone because you're putting yourself in a vulnerable yeah. place. I, I like that you say that it's an intimate thing because it really is. I mean, it's especially given the context of everything. Yeah. Yeah. It will be interesting to see how it plays out with him basically just, you know, helping to destruct her, her engagement. Yeah. Well, let's move on to her <laughs> offspring. We really Amber and Ryan. We got yeah. deep into we that. We got one deep day. into that. We did. Amber and Ryan. My first observation about the Amber and Ryan storyline is <laughs> frivolous, but I don't know the terrain of Bay Area, California, well or at all. <laughs> but the flora around Joel's house looked awfully Southern California to me. Oh, man, I would never have noticed <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> I mean, there's a hill, and it looks like these, like, tropical shrubs. Huh. And I thought, oh, you were in Los Angeles. That's <laughs> where, <laughs> it was nice to see Amber and Joel together. It's I think that's our first time much. we've ever heard her say Uncle Joel. I was like, oh, yeah, he's her uncle. Like, d- we never see Amber and Joel together. Yeah. But I found that scene delightful. I really enjoyed it. Was the tofu scene between Amber and Ryan, was that the first time she told him she loved him? I wondered the exact same thing. He smiles so big that it kind of made me think, yes, but then he doesn't follow it up with, I love you too. He just, you can tell he does because it made him so happy. It was really cute. Yeah. But I don't know. That's how I interpreted it. And I loved it. I thought that was a really clever way to handle that as a milestone. That it was so subtle that we're not even sure <laughs> that that's yeah. what it was. But to me, that's what made it feel so natural and sweet. Well, Melissa sent me a note about this ahead of time, that there was this song under one of the construction sites. Yeah. And it's hard to hear here because there's jackhammers and stuff <laughs> over it. So what is that song? That is, I can't remember the name of the song, actually. That's embarrassing. But it's Max Gomez. And Mark and I saw him in little old Pittsburgh, Kansas, where we used to live at a house concert. We did. Oh, what year would that have been? A good question. 2015? 2014? Maybe somewhere in there? So a while back... But I just thought this was like kind of big potatoes. Like, you know, just a guy we met in a living room being on, you know, network television before we met him, I think. Yeah. I'm realizing. I'm thinking he may have mentioned Parenthood. Really? I don't know. I can't remember. Maybe. But I feel like there's a glimmer of recognition, you know, when when you told me that he was in it, that he had mentioned it or something. But it was kind of fun when I, because I knew I knew it somewhere, but I couldn't place it. And then I looked it up and I got very excited. And he's a contemporary of who? Is it Sean Mullins that he's like buddies with? Or? <laughs> yes. And um, Sean Mullins, you might know from the song Rockabye, which embarrassing fact about me my biggest fantasy in high school was just having a boyfriend who would hold me while Sean Mullen's lullaby played. <laughs> it was like, everything. I just saw Mark be make a mental right. note. <laughs> He's actually done that before. That song has come on the radio Aww. and Mark's like, all right. Like, <laughs> you know, sort of like this, <laughs> this means too much to you. I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> I don't remember. That. He doesn't remember. <laughs> I remember. 
Well, I felt so bad for Ryan <laughs> at his new job, but I had to wonder if he was so inept on this construction site, why weren't more people helping him? Mm-hmm. Those guys were dicks. I just, I just felt so bad for I mean, and they were dicks, but I felt like it was kind of lighthearted ribbing. I didn't think that they were like out to see him fail. Mm. But I I was like, well, guys, go over there and tell him how to. I mean, I feel like Joel kind of did it that one time, but I think that kind I, of. I made just it wasn't worse exactly sure why this wasn't working out. It seemed like it easily could have. You know, I actually noticed something about Joel that I never noticed before. Here is my grand revelation about Joel. He's a very you know kind, good person. We already knew that, but in this episode, it occurred to me that he's maybe just like so effortlessly like good at things and good with people that he twice, I think, had a little trouble connecting with someone who was struggling. With Ryan, it was socially. And I think, you know, you could just juxtapose the way those guys treated Ryan with the way they talked to Joel. Joel's their boss. They should think he's an asshole and hate him, but they were like joking around with them and they obviously loved him. It was easy for Joel. And then just a real quick throwaway line, not to get too much into another storyline, but just real quick. I remember when Julia was telling Joel about Victor struggling with math and she was like, he thinks he's stupid. He said he's stupid. And Joel's like, are you sure he meant it? I remember being that age and, oh, yeah. and I, I, you know, I hated math. And I thought, well, that's interesting. He's like so good at stuff that I think he just doesn't really maybe spot the signs when someone is like, really struggling it made me wonder has joel ever like really struggled as far as like self-esteem goes you know what I, like like just knowing self-worth you know he he's certainly been through things and julia doesn't always treat him very well but he knows he deserves to be treated better and he tells her you know like anyway that's just a quick little note that i took good insight Thank i you. didn't have it <laughs> <laughs> i win no <laughs> anyway <laughs> <laughs> What our listeners don't know is we keep score. We keep. And at the end of this podcast, when we finish this series, one of us will emerge the victor and not Victor Graham. <laughs> oh, no. So this is like a Hunger Games thing. Yes, one of us will be yeah. murdered. This was America. Everything has to be a competition. That's right. Yeah. There's got to be a hero and there's got to be death. <laughs> yeah. And whoever, whichever one of us is the loser will be put to death. That's right. Podcast. That's what's going to happen. That's how God wants it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I worked construction. That's why we asked you on for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's been a long time. But I, too, was... I'm not a natural handyman. And uh, it didn't come quickly to me. But I did have those jobs. And there were always those guys that were just fucking dicks <laughs> about stuff. I mean, and and it happens. And like it, you know, and then there's people who will help and be your mentors and things like that. But there's also this sense of if you don't belong here, get the fuck out. Like it, it's kind of a brotherhood. It's kind of a, a thing where these are people who pride themselves on their ability. And I don't mean to read too much into the scene. But I'll just say from my knowledge, like it's people who pride themselves on their craftsmanship. And there is, from my experience, there was a bit of a chip on the shoulder about maybe not going through school or not, maybe not being uh, respected as much because they didn't have a higher education, like as far as like liberal arts education. So this is kind of their domain and somebody who maybe doesn't fit in just gets kind of eaten alive, you know. 
I did think the environment felt very um, straight male. Yeah. And it felt like the kind of environment that on the rare occasions I find myself in, I'm just like, I don't know how to operate in this. Mm. I'm really uncomfortable. But that still confused me because I thought, well, Ryan was just in the army. I mean, you don't get much more like aggressively straight and male. Not to say every soldier is straight. We just had a gay one on last week. But (laughs) (laughs) but I thought like he should be very comfortable with this social dynamic, right? And he did not seem to be, although the expertise could be a thing because I also, I really value people who know what they're doing and if there's a downside to that, it's that I value people who know what they're doing in the most traditional credentialed way. And like in the music world, if there's someone who like they're a great musician, but they don't really read music, I, I would never hire that person. That's <laughs> like, you know what? I don't have time to figure out the way that you understand this and mesh it with mine. I need us all to understand it the exact same way mm-hmm. because we have a job to do. And so if I were those other, you know, union guys, and Ryan even says it himself, like, I've never built anything up to code. Yeah. If I were one of the other guys, I might be like, I don't have any patience for you. We have a job to do here. And if you can't keep up, you can't keep up. And they see the way that Joel talks to him. And I think it's pretty clear to them that maybe he got the job because he knows Joel. And favoritism, I would think, would not go over well, you know. So Yeah. I also wonder, did Joel tell them that he was a soldier? I mean, I I don't Mm. feel like they knew that. Like, I feel like in real life, there would have been respect there and that people would have reached out and they would have said, hey, man, thanks for doing this. And then they would have like had some patience and they would have had things and maybe they would have not liked that he was just kind of scabbed on or whatever. But I think there would have been respect for that because that is part of straight white male fraternity is combat and, and it is respected. And so I... I thought that that, to me, that didn't fit right. Like being a person who's seen those, you know, those guys usually bond (laughs) regardless of talent. Those guys stick together. So that's not something that uh, I saw as being particularly realistic. But I did see the kind of the blood in the water kind of sharks circling. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that was very real. I can certainly relate to Ryan's insecurity and that if you let that kernel of insecurity lodge it can make you do worse work than you oh yeah otherwise would have i don't think you know, he I would think have smashed that window smash the window i don't think he would you know, have if he once, you, once you start to feel like well i don't fit in here yeah it, then it's just gonna compound and he's also panicking and he has ptsd and he's you know so so and nobody is that we know of has knowledge of that you know they don't have knowledge of that he's going to panic and he's going to do things that are out of character. Like Amber's seen him take too. the pills, but like I did think it was very telling that he took those pills at the end of the episode. And that, I don't I, think I she... took note of that. I was like, because we wondered before, like, well, maybe he's taking prescribed. pills that were prescribed to him and maybe he's taking them exactly as prescribed, in which case that's like thumbs up. Good, Ryan, for being responsible about your mental health. It feels like it's definitely crossed the line into worrisome. I He took a handful and he took it with alcohol. And, <laughs> I was yeah, like, well, this is not a good sign. I, no. I mean, when he did that, I kind of went, oh, because I thought it was like an OD situation. I mm. I didn't because I was like, that's a lot of pills to wash down with a shot. Yeah. After talking with Josh last week, I feel kind of icky about Ryan's portrayal in general, even though, like, as Josh said, it, it's definitely true for some veterans and well acted very well acted 
maybe it's because I keep drawing a parallel with Seth. I'm thinking like, oh, this is going to be Amber Seth, someone who has this like, you know, monkey on his back. And I'm not sure the show is saying that, but if it is, then they're kind of equating his military service as an affliction on the same scale as drug abuse with Seth. And then I feel like, well, that's too bad. I know I could be reading a lot in that they don't mean. And I suppose it's not the service that's an affliction. It's the PTSD. It's the mental consequences. But still, it's like, ugh. That's a shame. I don't remember where I heard this, if it was in one of my classes or what, but a former soldier had talked about the different kinds of pressure, you know, the the ability. And I think this character says something about being able to put together a gun in 30 seconds in the dark or something like that. Like the type of pressure that you have in a military situation that is life and death and the type of focus you have to have and the type of pressure that you have in real life and the type of focus you have to have for that. And I think that we don't really have, like, there's no narrative there that talks about that, but that's what it makes makes me think of as we revisit this, is mm. that this is a guy that probably saved lives with his reaction to things, but we never saw that with the character. We're just seeing him in a real-life situation and a pretty mundane task, and he's yeah. not able to overcome it, and he's, you know, and mm. everything's getting in his way, and he... You you build success on success, and he's not having any anywhere. He's just not having any. And so it's just, he's just spiraling, you know? And then I think also, like, in that construction job, like, you know, Joel can look at him and say, here, cut the sheetrock. This is an easy job. It's an easy job for a person who knows how to do construction. It's not an easy job for somebody who's just coming in. Like, there's a trick to it. You have to cut it a certain way. You have to break it a certain way, and then you have to cut it again. And you also have to be able to, you know, you have to know the context with which you're doing and you're going to make mistakes. I mean, anytime I do like repair around the house, I make about four mistakes. It's usually on the fourth try that I get it right. (laughs) Um, And that's just another reason why it's good that I don't do this for a living because (laughs) I fuck it up a lot more than I do it right, you know, but it's okay when it's our own stuff and I can fix it. And I'm I not, think, like, calling him names and mocking him in the yeah, corner. Yeah, just that pressure, you know, yeah. not the pressure of it. No, that's a good point. I did think it was a really beautiful idea that Amber had, and I thought it was a really interesting conflict. Like, this happens all the time, especially with the Bravermans. Like, that's all. The, that's how they all get work, is they go work for each other. Yeah. And so it made sense that she would think <laughs> of asking a family member. And Joel, you know, has a big heart. And so I think it makes sense that even though he didn't need Ryan, he made room for Ryan. But I I loved that where it went was he felt really uncomfortable. And I do think that makes sense. You know, I've mentioned the things they carried before, but I do remember this really beautiful story in that book where one character had a really hard time adjusting, which was in contrast to the main character, who's the writer, you know, he's a writer. And so he was able to just sort of write, you know, and now he had all this material, but this other character didn't know what to do. And, and all of his jobs he had felt really inconsequential compared to the stakes of war. And I thought that was a really interesting point. Like, I'm going to cut the sheetrock. Like, you know, like, I don't think that Ryan thinks like that, but I wonder if it all does seem a little like, you know, like sometimes I have moments where I'm exhausted and I'm like, what are we doing? What are any of our job? Are we helping anyone? Like I'll have moments like that. Am I making a difference? And I wonder if like after going to war, if that's even more intense where you're like, so I'm going to, 
I'm going to cut this sheetrock. What does that do? What does that matter? Like, I don't know. I, anyway. And yeah, and I don't think that's the side of it they're exploring, though. You know, no, it's, it's, it's more not. like the the inability to just reassimilate into society. I don't, I think that he'd be happy to find meaning in it, you know, but his body's not there. Like he, he's no. like a shot, you know, it's like a, the, I don't know if it's, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know what his character went through, but yeah. Well, good luck, Ryan. <laughs> he's going to, I think he's going to have to, he's going to need it. Poor guy. In other news, Glenn Hansard is here. In other news, we've also seen Glenn Hansard in concert. We have. In someone's house? No. Felt like it. <laughs> but it did. Okay. Yeah. Well, he opened up for Eddie Vedder. Eddie Vedder had a solo concert run, and he came to Tulsa to the Brady Theater, which is a fun little... Hole in the wall. Hole in the wall that we've seen some good shows at. And uh, Glenn Hansard opened for him and was excellent, and then they... Came together to say, what's the song that falling is? slowly, Fla- falling slowly the from Oscar winning song. It's just one of my one of my favorite musical moments. Um, that I've seen live. It was just outstanding. And the fact that Glenn Hansard by Eddie Vedder, and it's Eddie Vedder, but, I mean, he let him sing on this song that's like a masterwork of a song, and, he, you know, he let him sing with him on it. And I know it's a duet, but it doesn't have to be because Glenn Hansard's voice is Glenn Hansard's voice. But, man, it's that was great. Yeah. So good. So cool. For anyone who doesn't know, I just was looking up Glenn Hansard. <laughs> He's an Irish musician and actor. He has a band called The Frames, and a duo called Swell Season, which is himself and Czech musician Marketa Irglova. His co-star in Once. I don't know if I said that right. But yes, she starred with him in Once, which, as you said, they won an Oscar for Best Song for. Deservedly. And it so was gorgeous. adapted into a Tony-winning stage musical. Yeah. Have you seen that? I have. And fun fact, I do not like the movie of Once. Or at least the one time I watched it, I was like, yeah. I loved the play. Wow. Fun fact, I'm the exact opposite. I loved the movie, did not care for the play. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> the hell? That's a draw. I mean, <laughs> no one gets a point on that one. <laughs> I thought Glenn Hansard was a very good actor in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Glenn Hansard was it great. is kind of confusing why he was in this episode. But <laughs> well, I kind of like recording that they didn't at the come up with some reason. I mean, yes, there was that reason, but it wasn't like CeeLo Green where it's like CeeLo Green's going to put us on the map because he's here to record. Or Dawes, where it's like, we got to go chase down Dawes. Right. It was just, oh, he's here. He's a client. Are we just supposed to like accept that as they're successful now? They don't have to chase down big names like Glenn Hansard. They just get him and it's not a storyline. He's here. Well, now that you say it, yes, I think that is exactly (laughs) what it's supposed to show. I like that. To me, too, it, like when he starts to interact with the neighbor again, it does kind of add to it. Like he has Glenn Hansard in the studio. He doesn't have freaking time to talk to the you know, yeah. neighbor and he doesn't have time to deal with this yet again. He has a somewhat famous, accomplished person Oscar in the studio. Winning. Yeah. And yeah. he has to tend to this. And so I, I felt the urgency. And like Glenn yeah. Hansard is not playing into it very well because he's totally like, is that my car? Like he's not, <laughs> he's not being a diva at all. But if he wanted to be, you know, you would see, you would see the urgency even more, I think. And like, just get out of here. I'll talk to you later. My God, just go away. I get it. You hate us. Fine. You know? Yeah. 
and That's how it's true. reflecting on you. And if it was one of those funny named bands that they've had that is like obviously fictional. The Tritones. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't have been. Yeah, good point. Well, and last time in the last episode, Crosby mentioned he was going to sue Marlies for defamation. Yeah. But I had looked up. I don't think I shared this on the podcast, but I looked up what are grounds for defamation. And one of the things you have to prove is that it has impacted you negatively. And I think in the last episode, Crosby didn't actually have any proof of that. They hadn't lost any business at that point because Marlies was spreading lies about them or anything. Everything was going on just fine. If he could say Glenn Hansard was a client here and then Marlies had his car towed and he withdrew his business and now we're out $200,000, then it's okay. Now maybe you have a leg to stand on. Anyway, I in that scene, I thought, I dislike Marlies. I absolutely do. And I think she started things off on an unnecessarily combative foot. But how long has their feud been going on? And why are cars still, still parking, parking there? Where I Crosby that knows they shouldn't be parking. That's Wouldn't like, you just be like, heads up, Glenn Hansard. This woman will have you towed. Yeah, you have oh, got you can't to park, park somewhere there. else. It's like, even if she is being unreasonable in how she's going about this, you have to follow the rules. And if she does have two parking spaces that are hers and not yours, don't block them. You know, it's going to make her mad. I don't remember which scene, but I just looked at Melissa and said, I mean, I don't like her, but she's right. All of her complaints are correct. Those are valid complaints. like, And they're not being fixed. Like, you complain, but then Crosby takes a leak on the porch or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay, so you you feel like you're being heard when that happens, right? I mean, I mean, you know. No, that's... Jeez. That yeah. is a good point. Like, they keep just patronizing her and saying, all right, we're going to work this out. I'm like... Well, how much energy do you need to expel? She doesn't actually probably want to have 400 conversations with you. She wants her parking space to be free. Just tell the people don't park there. When she hung up the little no parking luncheonette sign later, I'm like, could you have just done this to start with? Well, she, and I don't know that she should have had to do that. Right. You know? I agree. I agree. They should have hung up a no parking sign and talked to Glenn Hansard. Well, how did you think this conflict resolution went. Hey, Crosby. sorry I'm late. I was working with Glenn Hansard, but since you're early, that definitely takes precedence. <laughs> all right, um, so we're all here, and I understand that you've had a misunderstanding with my brother. Your brother, you, everybody who comes in and out of this building, you people are awful. I wouldn't exactly call that a misunderstanding. <laughs> well, she is funny. I, I think that it is a I told this one, littering, smoking, shouting in the alley, <laughs> parking in my space, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Okay, well, these are all the items we want to address. And again, I wanted to do this sooner. I just, I couldn't do it. Oh, because... yeah. You know when things get done? When people feel threatened. Otherwise, they walk all just over ask you. Just Sarah. Case in point. All right, I can assure you that's not the case here. I've got some pressing family matters to deal with, but I'm here to deal with it now. And family matters? His wife has breast cancer, so you might Probably. have to cut it. Please, well, some respect for the family privacy. She's acting like it's trivial. Tell her she's going through chemo. It's true. She's going through chemo, and as you can imagine, it's been a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. All right. I had that <laughs> last year. <laughs> so there. It's just, what are you going to do well, now? Well, I'm very sorry. I, I know what that's like, and it's a, it's a difficult thing, and I'm very sorry you had to go through that. Now, I just want to make Wait sure Wait a that, second. What? 
You're not trying to use your wife's cancer to get me to drop my complaint, are you? Because no. that would be Adam. really crass. Is that what you're doing? No. I am simply trying I to don't. solve these wow. neighborly oh, issues. How? Okay. okay. You know what? Down. I'll see you at the city council meeting. Drive safe, Maureen. You know my name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, okay. I have a question for you. You guys, when you were listening to that scene, you both laughed when she said that she had had breast cancer too. Which Let was the record not show. my reaction. It's not, not funny. Not because that, of. Yeah. No, it's, no, it's I not didn't funny think that's that she why had you cancer, laughed. No. But why did you laugh? Because I did not have that reaction to that line. I because had, of hadn't course even she to did. Me. Because of course. Oh. Because it's not about humanity or it's just about like. I don't think she had breast cancer. Oh, well. <laughs> That's why I left. Oh. I think she's sitting there and she's thinking, oh, oh, I had that. And then wow. I think that whenever he kind of like she's is just handling Penelope it very well, then she's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> You're just using this. So I, to me, the character, I don't, I think she's wow. completely unscrupulous. I don't think she had it. Okay. And that's why it makes me laugh because she's totally that person who's never going to be wrong. She's just never going to be wrong. She's going to find a way to flip it her way all the time. We're seeing it on TV. We see it in the, in the message boards. We're seeing it everywhere. They're just people who always have to be right and their cause is righteous and they're going to go after you and they, whatever the issues are, they know what it is and they've been there and you can't tell them otherwise. And I thought that that's what, that was my read on it is okay. I just don't think she had it. Well, now I feel kind of like a bad person because I laughed and I do think she had it. I laughed because I think a normal human being's reaction to finding out that, oh no, there's more to this than I thought his wife had breast cancer. I think you'd be like, oh wow, I'm so sorry. You know, I actually had that. And it might be a bonding moment. I laughed because it just so fucking was not. It was like, (laughs) yeah, so I had that. What else you got? Like, what other excuses can you throw at me? I've been there. Like, it's no big deal. I defeated it. (laughs) I just, that's how I sort of took it. And it made me laugh that she was just so like, (laughs) that does not deter me or my cause. (laughs) Has she ever, I mean, I've I've seen a couple of scenes with her other than this one. These are her only two episodes. Okay, so, okay. So she's never been reasonable no not once no not really the well, running. her requests i think are reasonable no yeah her i get that tactics are just like this is Nuts. your first strategy i mean her interactions be unpleasant though, her yeah. interactions are never reasonable like it's never yeah. like she's it never like even when like from the get-go it's just it's a fight like she's she just goes after one thing after another after another yeah. after another it definitely does make me think when she says like you know when things get done when people feel threatened that's when i thought okay th- this is how you have gotten through life so you have been up against things and the way you have figured out how to handle them is just steamroll through and i remember i remember grocery shopping here in queens I mean, this was uh, 10 years ago, probably. And I don't even remember what the issue was, but there was like only one checkout lane open and someone in line starts just yelling out. Why are you doing this? Open up another line. Because there were like 10 people waiting in this one line. It's just yelling to no one. (laughs) Come on, open up another register. And then I was so embarrassed. Like, God, who is this? You know, who raised this person? Just screaming. And then an employee comes over and opens up another line. And then another person in line in front of me goes, squeaky wheel gets the grease. (laughs) 
And I thought, that's true. I mean, that's something that I feel like as a Midwesterner, we are not taught that. Yeah, no, we are not. But it is true. And I went over into the other line. I remember, I mean, the wait was half the time that I thought it was going to be. My strategy was just deal with it. Stand there, yeah. And this other person's strategy was make a fuss and get another line open. Okay, who's wrong? Who's right? I remembered that Marlies had had breast cancer, but... Allegedly, no. I allegedly. I don't believe that shit. (laughs) But what I liked about it was that, to me, it was like for a second, I thought, oh. Yeah. Everyone has a story. There's going to be more depth to this one note character. And this is really going to go in an unexpected direction. And arguably, I think that would have been more interesting. But I liked that she immediately reverted to her old ways because I, I like the point that like even people who've faced adversity can be assholes. Like yeah. it doesn't just automatically expand. Uh, their and maybe they're humanity. assholes because of the adversity and because of what they had yeah. to do to to survive that. And then you know you have to adapt again to go back. I mean, kind of goes back to uh, not that he was an asshole as a soldier, but. You find a way to live, how to survive, how to get by, and then you're in something else, and you have to find a different way to adapt. Yeah. But I don't think that's Marlise. I think Marlise is <laughs> just yeah. almost comic relief, like to create. Like it's. I don't even know if she's meant to be funny. I find her hilarious. She's. So I do funny. find her funny. I mean, she's she very drives me up the wall, but I find she. Oh, she's a tr- funny too. Just a. But I love that she's short. Like this is such such a random detail, but you saying like because of the adversity she's faced, something about the image of a woman, and not just a woman, but a tiny woman. Yeah. Kind of creating all this storm. I thought. Yeah, you got to figure out how to operate within whatever environment you find yourself in. And if you're a tiny little woman and no one listens to you, you're going to speak up. I mean, or it's believable that one might speak up and like, okay, so this is how she has gotten to a place where she can purchase this almost million dollar condo. And I, I she doesn't take any shit. I think like, (laughs) Something else that's interesting is this is what some people are to us. Like, from our perspective, she is one note. But I like the idea that she's not. She just is from our dealings with her, from the Braverman's dealings with her. But then she goes home and she's a cancer survivor and she's probably got a difficult relationship with her mother and an ex-husband or an ex-wife. We don't know. She's got layers. We don't see them. And I sort of dig that because she's not going to be vulnerable with these people. She started to be. And then she's like, nope. Like, you know, yeah. She's yeah. like, I don't trust these people. And she wants to come home and she wants to kick it in her million dollar pad. And Crosby's pissing on her door or whatever. Yeah. And you can't and chill with that happening. In the relationship that she has with them, it's not about that. Yeah. I mean, it is like, I don't care that your wife had cancer. Stop parking in my parking space. It's kind of like last episode when Sarah's like, Hank's got a whole thing going on. And Mark's like, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. Yeah. 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 Well, I looked up the name Marlise. Is it French? (laughs) Well, what I found is that apparently it's of German origin. Although I think I might have the spelling slightly different. But at least in German, it means kind to all creatures. <laughs> there's some irony, but um, I'm not positive. Hey, listeners in Germany, does uh, that sound real to you that that's what it means? 
because I don't trust my source, which was just the internet. And also shout uh, out to you. <laughs> yes, we love our German listeners. We do. <laughs> do you have anything to say about the council meeting? I remember in the past finding that scene very moving. And this time I almost found it a little cringy. Like, you know, I'm like, oh, he just rounds up the entire neighborhood and they all have nothing. but None of them have noticed the litter or the... <laughs> You know, any of this. It is kind of bullying her. We all, well, I mean. Your opinion doesn't matter. You're outnumbered. But did you feel like. We all get along and none of us like you. So shut up with your legitimate complaints. Well, I was going to say, though, even though I can't stand Marley's, (laughs) we don't we don't see her complain about anybody else. Right. No. Okay. Mm -mm. But when the baker or whoever it is comes up. And she just rolls her eyes is like, oh, my God. Like, I thought that maybe she had had issues with him, too. You know, like, and maybe she just, oh, my God's whatever. I mean, she does seem like that kind of person. But I did kind of wonder, does she just complain about everybody? Is it just them or is it everybody? And then, you know, could is this, and, and could everybody be like, well, I mean, screw this lady. <laughs> but then it kind of went in a different direction. So I don't know. Yeah. I do think about when Crosby tells her, do you know where you moved? Like, I do wonder if she thinks the fact that she can afford this place entitles her to a total experience of the neighborhood that is just not the neighborhood that she moved into. Mm. And she doesn't get to dictate. But the only thing she actually complains about, outside of the smoking, and I'm someone who cannot stand smoking, but I think if you're outside, can you be mad that people are smoking? I- Although she then says they put out their stubs and her plants, so then that becomes a legit. Okay, yeah, you can complain yeah. about that. Yeah. I did wonder, on a bigger level, what was the point of this of whole storyline? Story yeah. yeah, what were we supposed to get from it? Was it just supposed to be sort of a funny two-episode little storylineette? Or was there something bigger to take from that? If so, I have to admit, I don't think I know what it was. Is it just creating tension with the luncheonette, like to show its importance that Crosby and and Adam are doing something that actually matters? Or was it to show that Crosby cares about Adam and is trying to protect him Mm. and kind of fails (laughs) until the end? And then he does a nice job. Is it just to let us see Crosby kind of win? Because it is fun when Crosby comes through. And I do do like it when Crosby comes through because he's such an eternal fuck up. In so yeah. many ways. And so when he comes through and when, especially when Adam can't pull it off and he can, that is I cool. do enjoy that. And so, yeah. you know, it, it served a, a few functions, I think a few little things, but yeah, overall, like it is a strange little arc, but I think you're right though. The real reason is probably with Adam occupied with family stuff. How does Crosby fare when he has to handle a problem on his own? Mm. The biggest problem they've faced. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just this cranky neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. I do feel like Adam in his prime, if he handled it right from the get-go, probably would have handled it. Like even even as toxic as she yeah. is. I think actually it really was a custom built for him. And I think if he would have had that talk with her at the very beginning before Crosby just mishandled it and mishandled it and mishandled it, that it, it may have went better. Maybe not, but Yeah, Crosby doesn't have the politic that Adam (laughs) has to, you know, Adam would not walk into a meeting saying, 
Well, I was just with Glenn Hansard, but you're here early, so that takes precedent. You yeah. know, that's... he wouldn't have messed up her name on purpose and then had to have her say, <laughs> "You know what my name is." Yeah, I would totally do that too. <laughs> you had two notes. I remember you telling me about that storyline before we move on. What was it? Um, one of them was about Glenn Hansard's guitar. Oh yeah, did you notice Glenn Hansard's guitar? I didn't. As it pans out, it shows like his uh, is it fingerboard, I believe. Um, on his guitar and it's like worn through and it's not just worn through like one hole it's like two or three finger size holes because he had played that guitar and literally worn through it wow it looks really cool it was super cool it shows these like it almost looked fossilized it was so worn through (laughs) your other note was a joke you know crosby didn't sleep with anybody in an ill-advised way at the end of this story but he did kind of fuck that lady (laughs) <laughs> at the end. I like that. I thought it was really funny. I thought I used up maybe my quota of fucks on this one, so. No such thing. No. I saw you catch yourself earlier. Yeah. From saying shit, and you said, like. Damn. Damn, and, like, what's re- going on? I don't remember that. <laughs> Be I must, yourself. I must have blacked out. <laughs> well, last but not least, we have Julia and Victor. A storyline that. I really loved. I was just enamored with it. Right off the bat, I loved seeing Julia doing homework with the kids. It felt like a really nice example of the grind of parenthood. The grind that I imagine exists, but that I have not experienced. (laughs) Ditto. But I feel like, you know, even though the show is called Parenthood and it's about parenting, it is still TV. And I feel like because they want the maximum drama... I feel like they usually focus on a lot of the highlights of parenting, the the big events or the tough conversations or the rites of passage, not so much the mundane everyday things. But I feel like those would be the things that would wear you down and it's like the patience it would take. And it's something that I thought a lot about during the pandemic, the number of parents who've had to do schoolwork with their kids at home. I think it brought that to a lot of people's attention, just how difficult teaching can be, especially when piled on top of parenting. Anyway, I just liked seeing something so like kitchen table issue. My notes go as follows. (laughs) Scene with swim fan (laughs) and her kids is basically just my job. That's what I wrote down. (laughs) And I still mean it. It's totally my job. I'm a special ed teacher, and I work with a lot of kids who it doesn't come naturally to them. A lot of the time, they've just their experience in education and sometimes their parents' experience has not been what it should be. And so any little thing (laughs) is is like pulling teeth because you've got to get to that place. And I thought that, you know, that I mean, that scene, I was just like, yeah. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I've been there a million times and it is like you're just you're just like in quicksand. Like, okay, just just get the number. Just please just take just do this, you know, and you're just doing it for them. And then you verbalize that you're doing it for them and say, do it on your own. And then they just stare at you. (laughs) And little Victor just he owned it. I mean, he just I like it when she said was it his baseball or something that Mm -hmm. he may not get to play baseball. And he's just like, doesn't he yeah. like push the <laughs> slides paper? it yeah. over? It. Yeah, yeah. He's just like, well, no baseball for me then. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and that was uh, that was good. But yeah, I feel that. I don't even know what else to say. That's one of your biggest 
maybe concerns, right? Like kids struggle with math specifically and they really don't want to do, is it, does it come from a similar place where Victor says like that he's stupid? Like, do you think some of your kids feel frustrated because they don't understand the material and it's just genuinely really hard? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it can, you know, every kid is different. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a different story. So, I mean, there's, there are kids who have legitimate learning disabilities when it comes to math and they just, as in with reading, if you just don't, you just, you know, have dyslexia and you can't pull the sound out of that letter and blend it together, kids will look at a number and be confused by what they do with that. (laughs) I do feel like, and, and I'll just make this quick, that we teach math wrong, that we teach math too abstractly. We don't teach it as a concrete thing. So when we teach kids how to count to 20, we teach kids what something plus something equals something else. But we don't actually show them what that means. And we don't take a long time to really teach that in a deep manner. We need to teach it like we do reading. Like A says ah. One means one thing. It's getting better, I think, in some places. But a lot of the time, that is what my problem is. When I work with a student, I can just see that they just don't understand at the third grade level what the concept of like 52 minus 27 is. Or like fractions, they, like what they're doing. Like, yeah. And, and then and it just goes farther and farther into fractions. But if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that the numerical concept of that and why you would borrow and what, what the tens places and the ones places and all that, and it just gets progressively harder. And like at my school, once they hit third grade, we start hitting the fractions and the multiplication and division pretty hard. And fractions start off pretty fun. It's pretty concrete. You can really like get into it and really see it. And it just gets, woo, you know, it it gets harder and harder. To really jump ahead to the end of their storyline, when everything has been resolved, we see Julia eating cookies with Victor. And I thought she should really bake with him. Because that would be a great way to teach him about fractions. If you could lay out all the measuring cups and say, okay, we need three-fourths of a cup of brown sugar, but I don't have a three-fourth cup. Here's a one cup, and here's a half cup, Mm -hmm. and here's a quarter cup. How can we get three-fourths? And I think then you could literally here scoop out a half Wow. And, and, you know, anyway. That reminds me of when I was in chemistry and physics in high school, I really, really struggled precisely for the reason Mark said it was taught very abstractly and I could not understand. And then my best friend, Jay, Caleb's sister, explained equilibrium to me using Legos. And then I got it. And so it, I do think there's really, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to, to use something tangible. And I didn't even think about that cooking scene, but that, that's kind of a missed opportunity. Uh, although maybe she did do that. We just didn't see it. Maybe so. And yeah, maybe it's it was just a implied. beautiful storyline. I loved all, yeah. just about everything. I thought Julia's only misstep in the entire storyline was assuring him that if he worked hard, he would ace the test. I was like, oh, I don't, that's like a promise yeah. you can't. I don't think that's a good idea. And I think upon I think if she reflected on it too, she'd say, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. And she but. caught herself afterward, you know, after he called yeah. her out on it. She I, I thought you know, it makes sense. Like you don't know the answers. Like you don't know what's gonna work and you just wanna make the kid feel better. And you know, yeah. so she's just trying to get him to do something and, and it didn't work, but then it's it's not so much getting it right the first time, but how do you fix the mistakes you made? Yeah. I had a thought about that scene when Victor called himself stupid. So close. 
There's one thing you forgot to do. It's with the decimal point. We talked about this in the last one. You can do it. No, I can't do it. I'm not like Sydney. Okay, I'm stupid. I'm sorry I'm stupid. Hey, you're not stupid. Sydney can do all of my homework and she's a year and a half younger than me. Buddy, there's a big difference between being stupid and just being behind. You missed a lot of school and so we're playing catch up here, okay? That's what it is. We just gotta put in the time, okay? And if you work hard on this, I promise you, you're gonna ace the test and it's gonna feel awesome. Ugh, it broke my heart yeah. when he said he was stupid, especially when he apologized for being stupid. I'm sorry I'm stupid. And it <laughs> made me think of a Whoopi Goldberg bit from her stand-up that she does about how much she hates the word stupid. She thinks it's one of the worst words you can use. And she's like, we teach this word to kids. And, um, you know, we don't say, hey, don't say that. And And when I first heard it, I kind of rolled my eyes. I'm like, stupid is not a bad word. Because she was comparing it to, like, curse words and racial epithets. <laughs> but her point that she made, which I think I actually agree with, is that it is an extremely powerful word, especially to kids. And she says, when you say that word to a child, that is a word they will carry with them forever. And they will yeah. hold on to it. And I, I do think if you're branded that way or made to feel that way, especially by someone in a position of authority, it can be very hard to shake. I have, I feel like a phobia of feeling stupid. I mean, I know no one likes to feel <laughs> stupid or like they don't know what's going on but i it's like i think the sky is gonna fall if i make a mistake or am perceived to have not known something that i should have known and i don't know where i got that but it's like that thing with ryan where once i get it in my head if i think oh people are thinking i'm stupid then i'm gonna even do worse or like remember like i was on a game show earlier this year well now when you listen to this it'll be last year and i lost on the game show and i was like I didn't want anyone to even know that I had been on it. I was so embarrassed. And you and I don't know why I did didn't incredibly make, well on and it. And I didn't like, make any mistakes on it that I feel like, oh, I knew that answer. Why did I say the wrong answer? I didn't know the answers. And I don't feel like I necessarily even should have. It's not like, well, anyone would have known that. But I yeah, I just thought, no, I can't I can't have people see that. Wow. And I also tried to think about as you're talking about math. I had subjects in school that I didn't like very much, like math, but I always understood kind of what was being asked of me. There was one class I had in college, computer music synthesis, that I think I would rank as the worst class I ever took because I felt like I was drowning in that class. I felt like I had no clue how to do what I was being asked. But I also felt like I didn't even know what I was being asked. I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't even know what problem I'm trying to solve here. Wow. And when I think about like Victor in this episode, if that's where he is with these concepts and he's only 10 or 11, however old he is, boy, that is asking a lot of a child to just persevere. I mean, I think that I think she handled it well. I think you do have to ask them to do that. But it is a hard battle, and I admired him for trying as much as he did. Struggling in school is a really, that's an intense thing. I, as a teacher, of course, my students are older, but that is one of the worst feelings when a kid just thinks they can't do it. And I remember feeling that way in my science classes. 
someone signed my yearbook. I'm glad you were in calculus with me, so I wasn't the only dumb one in there. That was nice. Uh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I never forgot that he <laughs> wrote that. I didn't think it was funny. I thought it was mean. But, yeah. <laughs> I know. Classy. Yeah. Something I did think was funny was that we don't see Christina until halfway through this episode. And when we do, she's smoking a joint like it's no big deal. I love it. For her, it, it's not a big deal. It wouldn't be. But there's this moment when the doorbell rang. She had this look on her face like she forgot for a second how doorbells work. Like, <laughs> like when now what am I supposed to do? <laughs> but I, I, after that whole scene, I thought Monica Potter needs to be cast on a comedy. Yeah, she, she's so I, funny. She's so funny, but in a way that feels so true to the character she's playing. And the, her whole scene with Julia, I thought, was a blast. Yeah. Like, I loved that for the first half of their conversation, I feel like Christina wasn't even quite keeping up. She was just repeating what Julia was saying to her. Victor is really behind in school. Got it. Uh, Turns out he missed 47 days last year. So he has no idea what's happening in class. Um, And then since he can't keep up, he feels stupid. And then he refuses to study. And then I'm tutoring him, you know, and I'm going over his homework with him, but that basically just means I'm doing it for him. Um, yeah. And like you're doing it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like he thinks he's coming home to this witch and I oh, don't want to be that way. You're I, not. I know, but I want to be nice, you know, yeah. but I also just really want him to catch up, get and caught up. Try to catch and, up. Yeah. He has to catch up. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Like he can't not go to do it. So, so what do you do? With Max. Max, well, I... <laughs> On my side. Uh, well, to be honest with you, we bribe him. Yeah, if I were on oh. Oprah, I would be like, oh, it's an incentive system, but <laughs> it's just <laughs> bribery. Wow, okay. Yeah. And that works. It works. Wow. Where it... Got, no, it's down here. Here. Oh my goodness. Different shapes and sizes of candy. We have nuggets of fun, (laughs) chocolatey, crunchy, chewy, tangible little treats of joy. Delicious. And it works. It works? Yeah, it really works. So what do you what do you use this for? Everything. Everything. I mean like two gummy worms for homework. Take a shower. There's three fish. Take the dog out. (laughs) It'll take him out. Listen to me. When you're in the trenches as a parent, do not feel guilty about this, okay? You gotta do what you gotta do, and you gotta go with what works. You're a good mom. Thanks. It's perfect. So, Mark, actual <laughs> question. Like, is that a valid method? I mean, incentivizing of some kind, whether it's candy or something else. It is, and it's kind of a... I've evolved through the years over what I think. And I also think you can use it incorrectly, you know, and you can't incentivize everything all the time. But with my students, like I'm not going to give them candy, you know, for, for doing the right thing. But with students who have like behaviors who aren't doing the work, like you have to find, I try to find ways that aren't material. Like personally, I try to find like ways to build in breaks or do things to where they are, kind of self-monitoring and it's not just extrinsic 
rewards. I want them to build that, but sometimes they just need the extrinsic to get to the intrinsic. <laughs> sometimes you just, they, they, what they are asked to do, they hate so much that you have to just get them there. And I think that you have to use it skillfully. I, d I don't think you can just throw it at them, you know, and I don't think you, you just keep up in the ante. I think you have to go into it with an exit plan. Um, as a professional, that's what I believe. It's not what everybody believes. But I, I do think that it can be very helpful. And I, I used to just be against it. I used to have this old school mentality like, no, you just get them to do it. And you can. You can just get them to do it. But it, it can, you know, I mean, the toll it takes. And are they really, like, getting anything out of it? You know, like, one time I watched, a, um, I think it wasn't a TED Talk, but it was something just this woman was a master teacher, you know, and she was just like, when you want them to do something, make it pleasant for them, make them have fun. Like if they love candy, have candy. Like she didn't say give them candy for everything, but when they start to equate success in something they really hate or trying in something they really hate with something they really like, I mean, it is a form of classical conditioning basically, but you know, you start to see success. They start to get motivated and then you just pull it back a little bit and let them kind of get on their own. But especially with, with Max, yes, it makes total sense that, you know, give him a couple fish and he does the thing or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's a lot of value in that. And I, I think using it the right way. But I don't judge parents who, who would do those things. I'd actually be pretty pleased with them for trying. But I think there's also like doing it on your terms, saying, okay, you know, and, and we've seen that happen with Max, right? Like, you know, you're going to get this when you do this but not letting him set the boundaries as you go along. Well, I really hate this fraction. So how many worms are you going to get me to do it? Like, that's not how it <laughs> works, you know? Right. Yeah. So it's a complicated answer because I think you do need, I mean, I think overall, yes, it's good if it's placed the right way, but you can also just create kind of entitled learners too. Mm. But if they're learning, that's good. Yeah. So, yeah. I would also imagine it's different if you're a parent or, you know, I mean, you are a professional teacher. You both are. Thank you. If sometimes bribery <laughs> were your only methods, that would probably be a sign that you're not very good teachers. But Julia is a parent. She's not teaching her kids math every single day, nor is that her job, nor has she spent years training to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think what Christina says at the end there. When you're in the trenches as a parent, do what works yeah. and don't feel bad about it. Makes sense for her. But if yeah. she were a if she were Victor's math teacher at school and her only method was candy, I think maybe you need to go back to school to learn how to be a better teacher. <laughs> I will say I've heard teachers say things like, we're, we're there to teach them. Our jobs are not to entertain them. And I kind of disagree with that. Not that we should just be like, you know, tap dancing for their entertainment or anything like that. But what Mark <laughs> said earlier, that's, although I've literally done that. I was going to say, I know. <laughs> I Sorry, absolutely I'm, guarantee I'm flashing back to this scene in a movie that cracks me up beyond reason. And it is bad teacher with Cameron <laughs> Diaz where she just shows movies about teachers to her students every single day. And at a certain point, you cut to a random class and they're watching Scream. Scream. I remember the, the that. The scene in which the school <laughs> principal is getting stabbed. And I think you're supposed to infer that she has exhausted the supply of movies 
about inspirational about teachers. <laughs> and so now it's just two. There is a teacher in this movie. And he's murdered. And, and he's murdered. And it's Henry Winkler, which is funny. I Anyway. No, no. But I was going to say. Back to your point, which I'm <laughs> sure is gold. What I was going to say is what Mark said about it should be pleasant really resonated because I do get a lot of students, especially in my regular education classes, um, not so much in my AP classes, because those those students tend to enjoy school. It has been pleasant for them. And a lot of times students who are not voluntarily taking harder classes, it's maybe because it has not been. And so especially for them, I feel like I have got to make this fun And I think sometimes fun is like associated with, oh, that's not real learning. Real learning is struggling. But I'm like, not necessarily. Sometimes people are struggling because they're not actually learning. And sometimes if it's like fun, they're learning. It's, It's like when you sneak the vegetables into their milkshake or something, they don't even like realize that they're learning it because this is a good time. We're like acting out the play together and laughing and you know you know we're we're like creating inside jokes with each other that we keep returning to and and we're building relationships the whole time and anyway i think maybe the candy is like almost part of that you know by the end like you said they're like baking together they're smiling he knows that she's going to love him no matter what grade he gets you know that's important for my students to know that I just want them to try. And that may sound like a cliche, but it's true. And I think that's true for Julia and Victor as well. And maybe all of this will seem less heavy and daunting if it isn't attached to all this negative emotion and kind of trauma. I mean, 47 days is a lot to miss. Like what was well, going like on in his life? That, you know, your AP <laughs> students like school. That's yeah. pleasant for them. And she says to Joel, no one's ever told him that he's smart. Or that it's important to study. Yeah. yeah. And that is a big, you know, my parents, we were not doing math problems at the table or something, but my parents definitely created an environment in which learning was not necessarily fun, but it was respected. Mm-hmm. It was, this is a, a valuable thing to do and it's important to be good at it or to take it seriously, I should say, because I think they would have loved us whether we were good at it or not. But you all happen to be if we good were treat and if we were treating it as seriously as they were telling us we should, we would be good at it. Like, and I think they knew that, too. Part of my philosophy working with younger students is finding that point of success and, and you know, if it means that I need to give them candy, which I rarely do, but it, whatever it means, if it means they need a break every time we work together on reading until we get to a point where they find success and are motivated by it on their own. And most of my students that I work with find a place where they start to kind of glide on their own. And, and it's not as hard as it used to be. That success is there. And that's when I can kind of get out of the way and just be like, all right, good. And you kind of see that she changes it from you're going to ace the test to you went from zero or whatever to 67% or whatever it was. That is massive success. And that means you're only 10% away from a B or C plus like a passing grade. Like to go from, you know, knowing zero to knowing 12, it doesn't matter if it's 12 out of 100. Zero to 12 is a lot. (laughs) That's a lot to go if you put in an hour of work and you learn how to do 12 problems correctly, that's a lot. 
And, and yeah. so I think reframing it and, and um, looking at it not from the systemic point of view, but just from that personal success story and reframing success and reframing what that means and how that feels. And then it's not everybody else. It's just you. It's what you're doing, um, which is something I've done with myself, you know, and then I just take that over to my students and matriculate it down. But that's, that's what I think is the most that's the most successful thing that I've seen. It, and I have, I have systems of reinforcement for kids, especially the behavior situations. But often it's really, I feel like it's my responsibility to reframe how they see themselves and how they see success and put them in a situation where they can be successful. It's not about making it super simple or easy, but if I have to, I will. But it's about making them be easier on themselves and expect more out of themselves and then, and then just build on that. So, And I thought that this scene actually did that, you know, in, in a way, in a nutshell. Yeah. It, let's hear it. It was one of my favorite Julia scenes, I think, ever so far. Listen, I know you're mad, buddy, and I get that. But look at this. Two days ago, you didn't know how to do any of these. Look how many you got right. You worked really hard on this and I'm proud of you, okay? You know, it doesn't even matter if you get 62 or 92. I'm always gonna love you. Uh, I just, I was like, go Julia, super mom. Parent- parenting, I think. So good and... You know, in her earlier scene with Joel, she said, every time I try to connect with Victor, he pushes me away. And I thought that would be really hard. But I think being a parent is teaching your kid that there is no such thing as a way. You can push and push all you want. And I will still be here because I'm your mother. And I think that is so vital for kids. And it's something I'm so grateful to from my parents because I think they were A plus in that respect. My mom even has like a catchphrase that I won't share because it feels very private. But okay. um, <laughs> but she uses it with all of us kids to this day. And it's like a call and response thing. Like she will say the first half of it and we have to answer back. Aww. And it's kind of silly and I will roll my eyes about it. But I like won the parent jackpot because she does it because she means it. And, and, oh, and the, the message of this is that she will always love us. That's that's the message she's constantly reinforcing. And I've said it so many times in my life that I know, like in my bones, that it's true. And I do think that would be something it would be easier to inculcate in a child who you've known since birth. Mm-hmm. And with Victor, they're contending with years of maybe competing messages he's received. Yeah. And, but that's not his fault. I mean, that, and that kills me if he has messages contradicting that. But yeah, I thought, I thought it was so great. And also, I've read that it's better to praise children in school work for effort rather than intelligence. Yes. Because intelligence sets up their success with their self-worth. So if they happen to do poorly on a test, then they do end up feeling stupid. Well, something's wrong with me. Whereas effort teaches them a strategy that will always be valuable and will usually correlate to good results. You know, we've kind of gone past this now, but something I wanted to say earlier, Rita Pearson, do you remember? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like the best 
videos I've ever seen at like teacher trainings. A lot of them are bad, but the Rita Pearson ones, she was this incredible teacher who of course I didn't like know or anything, but these videos are fantastic. And I think my favorite quote ever was, so she would like be put in situations where students had been given conflicting messages. They didn't feel very smart or successful. And so she would talk about how like an F she tried not to like write that because that would like suck a kid's soul away. It would just devastate them. So she would write like if they got two right out of 20, she would write like plus two. And then her students huh. would be like, Miss Pearson, is this an F? And she'd be like, uh-huh. And they would, <laughs> and they would be like. You know, like, I think they were like, but what, well, why'd you write plus two? And she was like, because you're on the road. <laughs> and I really loved that you're on the road. It made me laugh and it made me feel so happy at the same time. Like, it's both kind of a funny way to look at it. But once once you get past the like, she's telling it in a humorous way. That is exactly how you should teach, you know? Yeah. And Julia does exactly that, you know, plus 62. You're on the road. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's awesome. I think the exact quote is, Miss Pearson, I got a plus two. Did I pass? And she says, nope, but you're on the road. <laughs> That's good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there is, there is something about the balance of truth, but also honoring the effort that I really appreciate. And I've actually, like, for such a simple, like, little talk that she did and that that line I've thought about that a lot when I talk to students because I want to honor what they did even if it wasn't very good you know even if but what they did they did it they did more than they did before and so how do you and I and again I go back to behavior a lot of the time because it can be like you can have a kiddo that you know just gets through 85 percent of the day but just has just just gets their money's worth at the end of the day, you know, just whatever it is. And, and so how do you hold them accountable, but also honor the fact that 85% of the day is a really damn big deal for some kids, you know, for kids who have never made it half the day in a classroom without completely, you know, taking it over or whatever. So how do I kind of navigate that without enabling that behavior, but also, you know, saying, man, that's, that's pretty good. You know, and but we got to get rid of this fifteen percent. Yeah, and now something about you saying that—it's not quite related, but it made me think back to the episode earlier this season where Victor didn't even want to go to school. Right. He only went when Julia parked outside and said, "I'll stay here all day." And we were assuming that wasn't an abandonment issue thing. Like, is she going to drop me off here and then I just never see her again? And and I think it was. I don't think it was necessarily about learning, although if he thinks he's stupid, yeah, he, that certainly could have played a part in it. But then you think about what is going through this kid's head when he's faced with the prospect of just going to a day of school. I'm stupid. I'm going to fail at everything. I'm worried that I'm going to be left here, that no one will come back for me. Wow. Just all these things on top of things. It, it's not just... Well, Victor's faking sick again. Right, right. Maslow's no, hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, he, Victor's just trying to get through yeah. life, yeah. just like Marley's, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually, totally true. I thought of an earlier episode, you know, they had to force him to go into baseball and he didn't want to. And now baseball's the thing that they're threatening to take away. That's major. Like, yeah. it's amazing that he has made such a connection there that this thing that 
was the alternative to video games, you know? Now it means more to him than video games. He's making incredible progress, it really seems. And it feels very believable. So I love that. This is a little random, but a subtle touch I loved in this episode is Julia's costuming. Even though she's full-time stay-at-home mom now, I feel like she's still dressing like a businesswoman or I mean like that scene where she has like end of the day talk with Joel he gets home from work she's wearing a dress (laughs) and I thought you wouldn't catch my stay-at-home mom sister in a dress at the end of the day and she looks great in dresses and likes wearing dresses but it's like you know I'm in a different mode right now yeah it's a good point but I I thought it felt consistent with Julia and this transitions she's in and i thought just this costuming choice speaks volumes even though they don't mention it and i also love just as an artistic person that that is the difference between a costume designer and just someone who's good with clothes right it's like a costume designer will be thinking about what would julia wear and why and I bet it was their decision to not suddenly just have her in sweatpants. I mean, Julia doesn't dress the way Christina dresses. Right. Christina's been a stay-at-home mom for 20 years, yeah. almost. Yeah, with brief stints in the work world. Yeah. Long enough to not get Bob Little hired, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, kudos, yeah. Yeah. costumers. Oh, that was great. I loved this episode, like, a whole lot. Oh, I also got to mention, I almost forgot. You said before Hank says trouble in Candyland. Yeah. And then Julia is using candy to bribe Victor. Oh, yeah. That is thematic through line. (laughs) There there it is. No, I thought it was really a a wonderful episode, too. You know, I was actually a little taken aback by how many details. Mark, my Mark, kept asking me, like, well, what happens in this episode? Like, as we were watching it, he's like, do they break up at the end? I have to know. And I'm like, I legitimately don't remember. I couldn't couldn't remember if they broke up or not. I, I... just remembered tension. And I think I did, I actually kind of forgot that he showed up there. I knew something happened, but I, I do remember like Mark and I just watching it and feeling a little like, oh no, he's there. <laughs> yeah. But it all worked so beautifully, really well acted. I loved it. Yeah. I also think in this season that feels so defined by Christina's cancer, almost no mention of cancer in this episode and almost no Christina. Yeah. So it's not like nothing else is happening in season four. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, it was really for comedic effect, both Christina's yeah. appearance and the mention of her cancer, oddly yeah. enough. But yeah. That That's a good it. point. Yeah. The Marlies thing and the high thing. Yeah. Funny. Which I did think Christina pretty much stole the show with that scene. I mean, it was so just good. so good. You just like every bit of it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, she should be stoned all the time. <laughs> if I had to find one other common thread. Besides candy. Like my trademark. <laughs> I thought maybe giving up the fight mm. felt like a common thread. Like, I feel like Mark gave up the fight. Yeah. Hank did with Ruby. Mm-hmm. Sort of. He's still saying she should come to Berkeley. But yeah, anyway. Ryan, mm. sadly, and Marlies. <laughs> She's kind of giving up the fight. And by bribing Victor, Julia's kind of giving up fighting with him and is instead making it pleasant. Yeah. Mark, did you like the episode? I did, Caleb. Thank I did you. like the episode. I uh like I said, I thought that the pacing of it was different from the other episodes, and maybe it was just me, but it was like it was getting its shit in. I mean, it handled a lot of stuff. 
but the way it handled it and just as like two, it felt like three minute scenes, like bam, 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 bam. And yeah, it came out pretty well in the end, but, um, and there's a lot of wide ranging and in, in severity and import things that happen, but yeah, it was good. And a nice Glenn Hansard song over that final montage. If you've got Glenn Hansard, he should do the montage at the end. With the line, I did notice one line of the song was, why must a man lose everything to realize what he had? And I thought, boy, that does apply, you know, to Sarah for sure. Yeah, geez. Maybe to Ryan a little bit. Mm. Okay, well. Well, thanks for joining us, Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's a delight every time. Every time, like the first time. (laughs) Thank you. We try to give you really good episodes. You bring good stuff. You know, I think you get some heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. So thank you for being here and for living with me. Thanks for having me for the third time. WrestleMania 3 was one of the best WrestleManias. (laughs) It took the first two to really build up to the third one. So you are, it's a metaphor for you. No, I just want to tell you that. <laughs> well, your belt's in the mail. <laughs> um, excellent. It's great. Well, listeners, please follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we're Parenthood Pals on all of it. And we can be found at parenthoodpals.com. Until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And <laughs> may your wishes all come true. Take this sinking boat and push it out. I think it's a ship. Ship. We've still got time. (laughs) I can't sing very well. All right. (laughs) 